Today on Coco Disaster, idiot blood is thicker than water. Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway, and today we have a very special guest. Hey, it's QB again. Welcome, friend of the show QB, to the show, QB. And you come up with that on your own? <laughs> I write all my jokes. Um, so, QB is here to talk about a very important single serving. This is a show that is mm, criminally underrated, or at least it would could be considered that if anyone knew about it. I feel like it's also relatively unknown as a series. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think that's just like, it's it feels a lot like it should be a lot more popular than it is, <laughs> based on how much effort went into it. Okay, sure. And QB has a lot of passion for the series, so we're here to talk about Eccentric Family seasons one and two, yeah, which I, I I'd still say relatively obscure anime series from PA Works. You can at least give me that much. Oh yeah, definitely. Like it was tough getting questions for this topic, and it's certainly in the West where like the first season got picked up for physical rights, uh, has since dropped them, lost. English rights for uh, English streaming rights for a while, and finally got everything back in order once the second season came out four years after the first season. Yeah, for a while it was pretty touch and go with like being like not even close to licensed. It was sort of just word of mouth is how it got around, but now it's now it's managed to get up to average maybe. <laughs> Yeah, like, it was only through your word of mouth that I even watched this in the first place, so it's nice that this actually has, like, more of an audience now and more of an accessibility to it. <laughs> it at least is all available for streaming. Whether or not we'll ever see another physical release of this series, maybe up for debate. But by golly, you can watch it <laughs> legally, and you know what? I think that's what's most important. Some series don't even get that much. <laughs> And so, to start off our discussion, because there's a lot to talk about with this series, let's quickly go over some background info on the series. And there isn't a lot that I could find, so this should go pretty quick. So, this is based on a series of novels by Tomohiko Morimi, who might be better known for other works he's done like The Tatami Galaxy, Night is Short, Walk On Girl, and Penguin Highway all of which have now received an anime or anime movie adaptation. The first novel for Eccentric Family came out in 2007, and a second novel called 
Nidaime no Kicho, or Return of the Second Generation, was released in 2015, with a third book currently planned, but from what I could see from interviews, he doesn't really have, like, a shape of it yet, just that this is there's going to be a third book. And I think like his other works, or at least the ones that I've seen, Eccentric Family is very wordy and dense in the way that it uses its dialogue and narration, and how it takes a bunch of very small stories and sort of ties them together into a greater plot as the story develops. For this particular anime, it was handled at PA Works, which is, uh, from what I learned while doing research about this, is a studio focusing more on adaptations of novels and original works because it gives them a greater expressive freedom in adaptation because they're not beholden to someone else's designs or ideas of how things are supposed to look. The first season aired in 2013 and covered the entire first novel's worth of content, and the second season came out in 2017, which also covered the entire second book. Character designs were done by Koji Kumeda, who also wrote and drew um, Sayonara Zetsubo Sensei, and I think that comes across pretty well through the character designs. I feel like they're that same sort of not-quite-anime and sort of like the same sort of fluidity in the designs. Yeah, you can definitely see a lot of his uh, Zetsubo Sensei faces in the background characters sometimes. All the faces are pretty simplistic, so they so like their expressions can come across like stronger. Yeah. Um, also, I'm pretty sure that he just straight up did the illustrations for the books. Oh, okay. So that's that's why he's that's why the anime went with this way because it was already the established style for it. All right, that makes sense, and it's also it it matches in style with the other works of the director uh, Masayuki Yoshihara, who besides this has only directed like like shorts and smaller series um, that have never seen uh, reproduction in the West, but. Yoshihara is one of the co-founders of PA Works, and primarily works as an animator or storyboarder, so his work on this series makes it seem like it's very much a pet project kind of thing, you know, something that's very special to this particular person. Yeah, I would definitely say that, like, this is PA Works' uh, passion project. Yeah, it, def- it definitely comes off that way, especially for, like, willing to take these breaks in between these sorts of things, and sort of, you know, it, it seems like a lot of talent is put into this series that doesn't seem like it's, you know, like a big seller or anything. Well, it could, it could end up like leading to more projects if they like put their best best uh, effort into this sort of like animation, I guess. If they just have like, like a like a CV or something. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, that people people kind of had the, those theories about like Violet Evergarden. <laughs> right, okay. That makes sense. Sure. <laughs> but, and and in comparison to something like that, this is so much... Whereas Violet Evergarden is, like, details porn in a way, like, everything has to look <laughs> like it cost a million dollars to do. Eccentric Family is a very simplistic art style. Like, outside of some of the backgrounds, I feel like all of the characters and everything are easily identifiable by very simple coloring and designs in a way that just, like, I don't know, it's very poppy and it's very appealing. I would definitely agree that it's more focused on, like, the setting and world around it rather than the characters themselves. Like, once all the tanuki look the fucking same. <laughs> right, like, the, the characters are... The characters are important, certainly. But, like, 
you know, they are players in a world that is much larger than them, and that's the story that Eccentric Family is trying to tell. And it does have some tie-ins to uh, Tomohiko Morimi's other stories, which we'll go into a bit later, but it's kind of uh, fascinating how much he's, I'm gonna say milked, out of the, <laughs> the setting and very specific sort of interactions that go on within these stories. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> So, when we discuss this series, something that's very important, like we talked about, is the characters. And there are a lot of them. So, before we even get into the recap of what happens in Eccentric Family, we should go down the list of the major players in this story and get them out of the way so that it does not get in the way of the many plot lines of Eccentric Family. So, our first focus is on the Shimogamo family, which is a family of Tanuki, and features our focus character, Yasaburo. And he's an interesting character to, to place at the forefront because he is sort of an outsider's view of everything, but he also seems to instigate all the action in the story. Like, he is separated from it, but still causes so much of the story to happen. Yeah, a character in the second season refer like refers to him as like it seems like if you knew all the, all this is going to happen and also at the same time knew absolutely fucking nothing. Right. And he he kind of, you know, p- plays to that part pretty well. So, he has three brothers. Uh the first one, the oldest, which is Yaichiro. Um Yaichiro is very no nonsense, um very level-headed and desperately wants to uh, become Tanuki president, <laughs> heretoafter referred to as the Trick Magister, which is the title for sort of the leader of the Tanuki, at least in the Kyoto area. Right. Then we have uh, Yajiro, who is the second oldest brother, and uh, his big thing is that at some point in his life, he transformed into a frog, jumped down a well, and now he can't transform anymore. He's been stuck in this form too long. And then the final brother, Yashiro, the youngest one, uh, is a very timid sort of tanuki, and also he has the powers of electromagnetism, <laughs> or he can conduct electricity. Yeah, he can charge iPhones. And so he's sort of like, I don't know, he's like a scientist, basically. <laughs> then we also have um, their mother, uh, Tosen, who... <sighs> what, a, what to say about Tosen? I... <laughs> Uh, she's she's something of a tomboy. Yeah, she she dresses up as a prince around town. Like when she when she interacts with humans, uh, she is transformed into sort of a princely character, and then she plays pool. So yeah, she's definitely like the center of the family. Yeah, for sure. A lot of actions on the part of the brothers is sort of in approval, or in part because of their mother. In particular, you'll notice during the series, anytime thunder or a storm happens, every every single member of the family comes running because she can't handle thunder. Yeah. And then we have their departed father, Soichiro, who was the previous trick magister of Kyoto. And season one is more about him than really any other character. Season one focuses a lot on the 
the grief of having lost a father like Soichiro and the feeling of the characters that they have to live up to him in some way. Because he was just like, he's like the number one Tanuki. Like, everyone thought he was cool. Yeah, for the first, like, half of the season, it's very focused on how they feel like they haven't lived up to their uh, great father's legacy. Yeah. Then, as a branch family of the Shimagamos, we have the Ebisugawas, who are predominantly just bad people. <laughs> that's what we're that's what we take away from it is that they're all just kind of garbage tanuki. Starting with Soun, who is uh the father of the family and also running for trick magister against Yaichiro. Um so when we say branch family we mean that he's uh Soichiro's brother. Right. Uh, so Suon and Soichiro were brothers. And these two families have feuded for a while now. Soon goes over to the Ebisugawas to try to bring peace, but almost immediately he then turns on his original family, the Shimagamos, and so this feud has been going on forever. Mm-hmm. Then we have the two terrible children of Soon, uh, Kinkaku and Ginkaku, who are twin brothers, and yeah, they're just garbage. They're posers. That's all you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> they are extremely posers. And then we have the one good child in the family, Kaisei, who at one point was engaged to Yasaburo, but after the death of Soichiro, this was called off. And so she kind of, she's mostly in the shadows, but uh, she grows in importance as the story goes on. So we have the Tanuki now, and above them in the pecking order of Kyoto are the Tengu. And the primary Tengu in the story, we have Akadama, who is sort of a washed up old Tanuki. Er, I'm going to do this all the time. It's going to suck. <laughs> we have Akadama, who's sort of a washed up Tengu. And yeah, he at one point broke his back. And since then, has sort of continued to demand respect without the ability to actually, like, do anything about whether or not someone, you know, like, throw shade at him. Uh, he also looks exactly like you would expect a Tengu to look. Right. He, he's got the long nose and everything. Like, it's just so... <laughs> you look at him and you immediately go, oh, yeah, that's a Tengu. Like, there's no, there's no question about it. Yeah. And he at one point took in Yasaburo as a student of sorts. And he also took on another student who... I wasn't sure where to put her in this list, but we're going to go with she's a Tengu for the purposes of this, which is Benten. Uh, Benten's a very mysterious character. She was also a student to Akadama, and to the point oh, where... for student... <laughs> Okay, you're right. We can get into that later. Yeah, she was kidnapped by Akadama and ended up becoming a Tengu. Or at least being able to harness those powers. She can fly, she can control the winds, things like that. And at this point in the story, she's sort of broken away from her teacher at this point, And she's living her own sort of charmed life. Very eccentric, if you will. And then... 
between the Tanuki and the Tengu in sort of the pecking order of life, we have the humans. And as far as the humans go, we have one group of individuals that end up playing a very important part, and that's a group called the Friday Fellows. They're a group of humans that mostly just seem like a, a like a drinking club. Oh, yeah. It's it's a kind of a hilarious reveal when the Tanuki talk about how there's this uh, group that are so menacing, and then you see them in real life, and they just look like a bunch of middle-aged guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a bunch of middle-aged guys, one really old dude named Geo Rogen, and Benten, who hang out on Fridays and just, like, drink. And the big thing about them is that they are known that at the year's end, they always make a tanuki hot pot and share it. And the last time we're made aware of, Sarichiro was the one who ended up in the hot pot. So there's sort of a lot of controversies surrounding how this happened and, you know, what this means for tanuki society. Right. And now that we've gotten the major players out of the way, I think we can finally discuss what happens in Season 1. Okay, so the way I'm going to break this down is through, like, the different plot lines that they do, like, simultaneously. Right. Because the Eccentric Family doesn't really have, like, one thing happen in one episode. They work on a lot of things simultaneously throughout each episode, so there's really no point to separate it by episode. Yeah, so there's, like, a single season-long plot and then sort of everything that happens in the story is, like, attached to that in one way or another. Yeah, so, like, we're, we're gonna start with, like, the highest plots, but the way that the, the show tends to work is it en- ends up coming to a head at specific points, and where all the plot lines kind of come to a climax at the same time. Yeah, and, like, it's, it's interesting to watch because you don't understand how they're gonna happen once you start watching, and, like, only by the time that they've finally gotten to the climax with the reveal of how all these things touch together, you're like, oh, that explains all of these seemingly random things that were happening and going together. Like, the most innocuous things come back in a way that you, like, you're shocked by. It's like, oh, that's incredible. It's, it's really cool how Eccentric Family ends up working. Yeah, it's a really neat a way to have a climax to a season. So the highest uh, level plotline, I, I guess you could call it, is the election cycle for the Trick Magister, or the Nisi Amon. Right, and so, as we discussed before, we have Yaichiro, the oldest uh, Shimagamo, and Soun, the oldest Abisagawa Tanuki, vying for this position. Yes, that presumably has power, but we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we are never made aware of what the Trick Magister does. <laughs> Um, so, there's also, uh, happening throughout is Ben Ten's Tangled Web of Relationships, which is a lot of... It's very mysterious, because she's a mysterious character, but it's basically uh, Yasuburo following her and seeing her do things and talking to her. Yeah, Ben Ten has her fingers in every pie. She, she has a relationship with basically every character, and in a very different way than, like, Yasaburo does. Yasaburo has a- ha, like, knows everyone and everyone knows him because he's a troublemaker and he's constantly just, like, acting out. But everyone knows Ten and seems to fear her. Like, everyone loves and is scared of Ten for her beauty and also the fact that she can be very cruel. 
Uh, specifically, she eats tanuki. Right. <laughs> and is very open about eating tanuki. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, she's very direct, she's very blunt, and so yeah, like, even Yasabro is like, he has this crush on Benten as sort of this older character who has this air of confidence, but also, he kinda hates her and is scared of her because she eats these tanuki, and so these sort of conflicting relationships are all Ben 10 has. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that develop throughout the season. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we also have written here the assassination of Yaichiro by the coward soon. Right. <laughs> you so... want to explain that one? <laughs> okay, so in the second half, so the first half of the season is sort of setting up the world and sort of, you know, really introducing the characters and their relationships. And what we know about Soon is that he really despises the Shimogama family, and we're not really sure why. There, you know, some kind of clashing difference. But as we find out later on, Soon clearly does not have the confidence that he can win the position of the Trick Magister. So what he starts setting up is this elaborate sort of capture scheme so that he can trap Yaichiro, sell him to the Friday Fellows for their Tanuki Hot Pot at the end of the year, which is the same day as the election. And because Yaichiro won't show up, he'll win by default. So where a lot of the plots end up coming to the head from the first part of the season are in this assassination plot that Soen puts together, where he's also going to capture the entire Shimogamo family and, I guess, presumably sell them off later, too, to, like, hide the evidence. It's more, it's more the second half of the season, because the first half is the Gozan Fire Festival. <laughs> right, which, it, we can talk about that, which it is a disaster. <laughs> yeah, the Fire Festival is a disaster. So it's kind of like the first example of the uh, eccentric family doing this uh, sort of climactic buildup that brings all the characters together and has them all crash together in this big fiery spectacle, hundreds of feet above the above the ground, in the middle of this uh, fire festival. That if you've seen any of this author's other works, you're probably familiar with. It's this it's this Japanese thing where they they light several fires, and the only way place where you can see the the characters made out of fire is from the sky, because there's no area on the ground where you can do that. And he loves to explain that every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is also the climactic peak of Tatami Galaxy from, I think, the first and last episodes. Uh, technically every episode, but that's just that show. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, I mean, that's the thing about Tatami Galaxy. But, yeah, so they have this festival where the Tanuki fly in airships and sort of celebrate the fire festival in their own way which is basically just getting drunk and having fun. They have no tie to the actual, like, proceedings of the festival or what it means. They just recognize it as a time that they can party. Right. So long story short, uh, what happens is the Ebisagawas don't like the Shinogamas, so they start firing cannons at them with fireworks <laughs> in them. And also Ben Ten's there, who gives the Fujin Raijin fan, which controls the wind to Yasaburo, who uses it to, against the Abisagawa's uh, gigantic tacky ship. And during all of this, Akadama is being ignored, and he hates this. So he just <laughs> destroys everything. Yeah, so we sort of have this setup where we know that last year the Abisugawa's shot down the ship that the Shimagamos had. So right now they're flying in, like, a tea room with 
basically like a an alcohol powered motor in it. <laughs> and the Ebisugawas have the just tackiest, gaudiest sort of airship they can because they love to show off. And it ends up starting a fight because the Ebisugawas like, oh, look at that ugly tea room you've got. Why couldn't you get a real ship? Everyone must be so embarrassed because you're such losers. And they start a big yeah, fight. They, they kind of say similar things to that throughout the whole season, <laughs> just bullying the people who had their father die semi-recently. Yeah, the, Kinkaku and Ginkaku are the worst because they're just like constantly bullying a family that's going through this grief. They really like taking the pe- people when they're down and at no other time. Yeah, and so um, using this this Tengu fan that Benten passes along to Yasaburo, he sort of throws the the Ebisugawa's airship uh, into the side of a mountain. And Akadama gets really mad because this Tengu thing is going on and he's not being treated right because he he needs respect, damn it. So he <laughs> drinks all the alcohol, the motor goes dead, and they also crash. And, you know, it's good fun had by all. Right, so just to be clear about the chronology, after after this is when the um, Tanuki election happens. Right. So that's in the second half of the first season. Um, also around the, around this time, uh, the frog in the well, which is a very direct metaphor, starts to like they, he starts to kind of want to get out of the well, or the his family needs him to get out of the freaking well. And then so much of the story, also on like a higher level, is this season is about uncovering the truth and learning to cope with the death of Soichiro. Um, and also, it's kind of revealed that Kaisei knows what happened to him. Right. So, with Soichiro's death, sort of, there are multiple versions of the story out there from the perspective of different people who saw him on the last day that he lived. And mm-hmm. by the end, we end up piecing together these multiple stories and understand just what happened that led to him ending up in a hot pot. Yeah, this also ties into Yajiro's uh, arc, because uh, he blames himself for Soichiro's death, because he went drinking with him. And that's the generally accepted reason for why such a great Tanuki would be off guard. Right, that he got drunk with his son, and his son left him alone in the city, so he got captured. So, yeah, by the end of the season, we figure out that that isn't the full reason why he died. It's Soon, who used his weakness to Ben Ten. Uh, to undo his transformation and trap him in a in a cage. Yeah, so what ends up happening is, after he goes out drinking with Yajiro, Soichiro goes to meet with his brother to sort of try and make amends against their family. Because, again, these families have been feuding for so long, and Soen ended up just kind of lighting more fires instead of trying to put them out between the two families. And we find out that Soen has had a very deep-seated grudge with his brother, because Tosin wanted to marry Soichiro and not Soen. Yeah. It's all over a girl, and it's only heightened by the fact that Soichiro also won the position of Trick Magister over Soen. A position he presumably doesn't even really want, because no Tunuki exactly would, except for Yachiro, I guess. Which right. is something that Yasuburo brings up pretty often, because it seems like a kind of fucking miserable position. Yeah, Yashiro really wants it, I guess, because he feels like he needs to be responsible, but everyone else is like, uh, what? 
Yeah, sometimes you kind of think that uh, the competition between Soon and Yachiro is just because no one else wants it. <laughs> so through this, Yajiro gets a redemption, recognizing that it's not his fault for what happened, and even if it were, he has to continue to move forward. He can't be stuck in sort of this this depression, you know, caused by this situation. It's also, it's also pretty great when that happens, because the way that uh, they make him not be a Faragana well is they give him alcohol, and then he turns into a train and runs throughout, throughout the streets. <laughs> Yelling, I'm yelling, I'm back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they feed a frog alcohol and he uh, finally remembers how to transform, but only into a train. We are told that very clearly, this is the one thing he can turn into now. So now that he's a train, uh, the rest of the brothers get into him. Uh, after, there, there's some other stuff involving King Kaku and King Kaku trapping the rest of the brothers, but they managed to get out of it thanks to Kaisei's help. And also uh, um, y- Yashiro really coming through for them. And they all end up on um, their frog brother train. And then they make it fly using the tea kettle from the from the fire festival. Mm-hmm. So they also feed it alcohol. <laughs> yeah, and then they fly directly into the hotel, which is both housing the Friday Fellows and the Kanuki election. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a real mess. And uh, yeah, so through that they are able to Reveal Soen's murder plot, and also his previous successful murder, which disgraces him so much that he runs away from Kyoto. But also, Yaichiro doesn't get to be president because he starts a real ruckus and, like, fights Soen at the election. He, like, turns into a tiger and starts just, like, mauling into his uncle. So they're like, ah! You know, maybe we should delay this for a year. Rethink all this. Yeah, and also having the wall between them and the Friday Fellows come down causes everyone to turn back into Tanuki and run the hell away. (laughs) Yeah, so a lot of stuff ends up happening, and sort of, by the end of the story, we're back to square one. Like, nothing has been accomplished except for some very exciting things. And uh, Yasaburo sort of discusses the fact that you know, maybe all you need in life is to continue to do exciting things and to, you know, kind of cause trouble. Which continues on into Season 2. So, Season 2 has more new characters, which we'll go through, I think, a little more, a little quicker. Not quite as many. So, first up, as we said before, the second novel is called The Return of the Second Generation. That's sort of what the story is about. Akadama's son... The Midaime, that's all they call him, like, the second generation, who is sort of this English gentleman? Almost, like, caricature of the idea of an English gentleman. <laughs> yeah, like, he's clearly Japanese, but he doesn't have, like, Akadema's huge, huge Tengu nose. But he's also wearing this, like, in, in place of this, almost, he's wearing this, like, 20-gallon hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a 20-gallon top hat! that he's got, and, like, a pure white suit, and he's got a cane and everything, and he completely denies that he is a Tengu. <laughs> he really wants people to believe, I am just a human man. Who but fly. no one's having it, because he flies all the time. Uh, then we have Tenmaya, who is this... <laughs> tr- like, ma- is, he, is he a sorcerer, I guess? He is a human, right? Um, he's a human who is able to trick Tanuki. 
And considering Tanuki are the masters of trickery, this is bad news for the Tanuki. Yeah, so he's like he's like a magician. He he talks about that at one point. And he escaped from hell and also has a gun, which is a very important part of season two, is he is a gun haver. It's actually extremely significant. <laughs> yeah. So then we also have Gyokuron, who is a Tanuki love interest for Yaichiro, an expert shogi player. And that's really it. Like, her place is predominantly to give Yaichiro a character besides Wet Blanket, who wants political positions. Yeah. Uh, she can also turn into a tiger, much like Yaichiro, and they were, and they grew up together. Yeah. We have Kurechiro, who is the one responsible Ebisugawa brother, who was out on, like, a pilgrimage, becoming a monk, and in season two returns to take the place of Soun, who has disappeared from his family. Then we have um, uh, Fluffy Grandma. I don't think she gets, like, a real name. We just know that it is the grandmother of, like, Yasaburo and the brothers of the, uh, of the Shimagamo family. No, she, she has a few lines, but she's basically just there to say wise things. Yeah, she she shows up basically to just be like, you know, Yasaburo, remember to keep causing trouble. And boy, howdy, does he. He follows that one to a T. And then the final new character is uh, Professor Yodogawa, a.k.a. Pompoko Mask. He was in the first season, too, but now he is... Um, at some point in the second season, he wears a mask and becomes a Tanuki-saving superhero. <laughs> right, so he was originally a member of the Friday Fellows, who loved Tanuki and sort of expressed it by eating them. And at the end of season one, he kind of realizes, personally, that he's like, oh, this isn't right. You shouldn't eat what you love <laughs> in this particular way. And so he starts a rival club, the Thursday Club, to counter the Friday Fellows and sort of advocate for Tanuki freedom. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that later, probably. Yeah, and so the primary plotline of Eccentric Family Season 2 is, again, the election cycle for the Trick Magister, though Yaichiro is the only one who wants to do it, so they're just really just going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions. At least that's what it appears to be, and, and right. it ends up causing more trouble down the line once uh, things happen. <laughs> Involving pro probably you-know-who, but uh, some more significant things actually happen in Ben 10's, uh, again, tangled web of relationships, as uh, Nidame shows up, and they have a history together. It's very complicated. Yeah, Nidame lives, has lived in England for, like, so many years, having, like, been, decided to discard, you know, his father's name and everything, and yet... Penten has found a way to tangle herself in his life, too. She does literally walk into his room and start laying down on his couch and taunting him. <laughs> right. Penten finds her way into literally everyone's lives. Like, I think Fluffy Grandma is the only character who doesn't have history with Penten somehow. <laughs> or, or just a straight-up crush on her. Like, that's half the cast also. Right. All of the men, again, are, like, fearful, but also very... Uh, aroused by her because of her <laughs> confidence. Like, um, even Tenmaya, who was sent to hell because of Ben Ten, is like, oh man, she's so, so hot when she's owning me. <laughs> He's got like a weird, weird thing with Ben Ten. <laughs> yes, he, he, he likes being stepped on. 
Um, we have another fire festival. It's another disaster in a similar way <laughs> to how it was previously. But I feel like it becomes more important because this is the first time we really see the Nidaime and Ben 10 dynamic get really heated. Oh, yeah. We are understanding these two characters as rivals for the the title that Akadama has. Like, he is officially the ruler of the Tengu of a particular mountain near Kyoto, and both of them stand a chance of becoming his successor to that title. Which, which neither of them really want, but they also don't want to see the other person succeed. Right, right. It is extremely petty in a fantastic sort of way. And so, yeah, that's a, that's another big plot is sort of the the Nidaime and Ben 10 rivalry. We see Soen return and trying to rebrand himself as a human, joining the Friday Club specifically to spite Tanuki. Yep. And that that works out so poorly that he ends up getting shot and he appears to die. Yeah, it's actually extremely dramatic, like one of the harshest uh, endings of an episode in the entire series. Yeah, but not before <laughs> Soen attempts to murder Yasaburo by pushing him into hell. Yeah. Th- thankfully, Ben 10 was there <laughs> fighting demons. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, Ben 10 was there sumo wrestling Oni to steal their horns, and also Yasaburo was there. And uh, that's not the only time that he tries to kill Yasaburo, because as it turns out, he's faking his death. Yeah, that ends up it, it ends up becoming pretty clear what's going on like halfway through the season. <laughs> yeah. Other storylines, we have uh Yajiro who has gotten better at transformations but decides to leave Kyoto on sort of a pilgrimage to sort of find himself and remove himself from the town where he has all of these sort of conflicted feelings uh resurfacing. Yeah. Um, there's more relationship development between Yaichiro and Gyokuran. They're, they're, they get married. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically it's set up so they get married and Yaichiro has something else to live for. And then Yaichiro, in his eternal wisdom as an older brother, also tries to be like, Hey, Yasaburo, you should have something you're willing to die for. Why don't you reinstate your engagement with Kaisei? And we get a lot of... I think Yasaburo and Kaisei's relationship in the first season is sort of fun and quirky in this particular way. It's a lot more mysterious, though. Like, they, like they, don't, they don't give a lot of details about, like, why they are the way they are. Yeah, but season two really wants to get into depth with where their relationship stands and why they act the way they do around each other and why both of them are so adamant about not reinstating their engagement, despite the fact that they very clearly have crushes on each other. Like, zero ambiguity there. They, they, spend, they spend the most amount of time together without actually seeing each other. Right, and yet they still have this great banter, they talk really well, and then it just all goes to hell. Yeah, they. so Kaisei has a secret that she's been hiding about Yasaburo, which is that uh, she is his weakness. Yasaburo has no weaknesses except when he sees Kaisei, and then his transformation becomes undone. And this is a big deal because the, Yasaburo is like the strongest living Tanuki at this, these kind, this kind of trickery. Yeah, so 
the reason that they haven't seen each other through these multiple seasons is because, and and this sort of comes up with um, Sorichiro as well, where his weakness is Ben Ten out of fear. Yasaburo's weakness is Kaisei out of love, and it kind of takes away the ability for them to do the thing that they're so well known for. Yeah, Yasaburo in particular like needs his abilities to do get out of all the shit he's in constantly. Yeah, he because he constantly finds himself in trouble, not always through faults of his own, he kind of has to be able to transform and sort of think on his feet. And Kaisei inadvertently ruins that, and she knows that, but he doesn't get it for a while. So she that's why she's been supporting from the shadows the entire time, because if she were not to be in the shadows, things would go badly. Yeah, and so that there's a really good sort of relationship dynamic there where as they go further on as well, it sort of develops and they sort of recognize that they can find a way around this. Then we have the conflict proper between the Friday Fellows and the Thursday Club. Again, literally just Yodogawa versus this group of, like, middle-aged drinkers. Yeah, they honestly give him, like, way too much leniency. Just because, like, they've been, drink- they've been drinking buddies for several years. Yeah, so they constantly yet let Yodogawa back into the Friday Fellows Clubs to drink with them, and they talk. And then uh, Yodogawa will just, like, start a big tirade about, like, oh, Tadoki freedom and liberation. And they're just like, can, can you not? We're just trying to drink. You do this every week. Um, and and ac- it actually ends up, because Yasaburo is, happens to be there, uh, ruining Soon's uh, try- trying to unveil himself as a human and join the Friday Club. Yeah. And... So, by the end, everything has come together again, and Yasaburo is up on the menu for the Friday Club. Again, another assassination attempt by Saun against the Shimagawa family, because he just hates them so much for getting in the way of all of his other murder plots. And so, he gets captured, and so does Kaisei, because they're having sort of this big, dramatic moment together, and they get um, shot by Tenmaya and taken to the Friday Fellows, where they're going to be cooked. And <laughs> Son fucks up again, because in the first season, accidentally, Tosin gets caught, and Tosin is like his secret crush, you know, the girl that he loved and killed Soichiro over. And then this time, they kidnap his daughter, and he, everything he does is consistently, like, fucking up. Like, nothing he does ever goes right, even a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's kind of reasons for that. You can. They're really um, obvious in the in the first climax of the season with the first Friday Club meeting where Yasaburo attends, mm-hmm. because it's it's very obvious that Soon is seeing them as like this legendary, like oh this like the, these humans they eat the Tanuki, but Yasaburo knows how they actually are and just makes <laughs> this makes this giant theatrical this dumbass argument that they clap for. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. And Soon is just sitting there like, what, what the fuck's happening? I thought this was about, he- about eating tanuki. <laughs> and so, at the end of the story, Yasaburo hijacks the flying train that the Friday fellows are having their party on so that they don't have anyone crashing into them for their year-end party, and crashes <laughs> into the Nidaime's house. Where they're having, of course, the tanuki <laughs> election. <laughs> and... The conflict this time at the election that's stopping Yaichiro from becoming the Trick Magister is that 
It turns out that the responsible brother of the Ebisugawa's Kurechiro is actually sewn in disguise, and he plants a gun in Yashiro's stuff at the his workplace, which is on the Ebisugawa household, like on their land, and tries to claim that the death of Soun was this elaborate plot by the Shimogamos. <laughs> They're trying to ruin Yaichiro's name so he can't be president, so that Soun, pretending to be his son, can be president. Yeah, but this ends up uh, not working because uh, Yaichiro comes back with um, <laughs> Kurechiro, the real one. <laughs> and then just as we're getting to that, a train flies into the house. And just destroys everything. Yeah, so Soon is pissed off about this. Um, because and, and also, uh, also during this part, uh, Nidaime picks up the gun that is the evidence against uh, y- Yaichiro. And is like, oh, this shit's fake. Right, so it turns out that everything Soon's done has been ruined. He, he couldn't convince someone that uh, Yaichiro murdered a man. And his daughter got captured. So he decides to fight Tenmaya, who is technically the cause of both of these, still having the original real gun. And while they're fighting, um, a, a hand from hell shows up, grabs both of them, and drags them back down to the depths. Yep, and Ben Ten did it. Don't worry about why. <laughs> <laughs> she sure did. And then it all ends with a culmination of the Ben Ten versus Nidaime feud. It, it's 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 remarkably ugly. <laughs> It, yeah, it starts out, like, really cool, like, where they're using their magic to fight, like, um, Nidaime has, like, fire magic, and um, Benten has ice magic, and then very quickly it turns to them pulling each other's hair. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very well animated, don't get me wrong, but it's the, that's like, the, it's so petty and stupid. <laughs> yeah, like, it's- Like, my, like, my, my theory about the, the second season is that it's talking about, uh, conflicts between species, like, mm-hmm. within species. And so it show because they show the Tanuki uh, election, which is a farce. They have the Tengu fighting, which is over the most stu- the stupidest shit. And none of them care about it, so it's also a farce. Yeah, and you have the humans in to have their Thursday and Friday fellows kerfuffle, which is just comical. <laughs> right, like nothing ever happens of it because it's just one dude preaching to a bunch of people who don't care. Yeah, but they also like him anyway, so there's really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. And that's sort of the end is like, well, okay, that's not quite the end, because something actually comes out of this season. Yaichiro is officially considered the trick magister. He wins. He gets married. Uh, Kaisei and Yasaburo uh, agree to sort of work on their relationship and figure out how to be happy together and not have to worry about this transformation issue. And Nidaime and Benten continue to live, basically. Oh yeah, Benten gets her gets her hair lit on fire. <laughs> yeah, Benten ultimately loses the fight, and Nidaime kind of loses his cool finally, and kind of just like says, "Oh, I need to get better. I just need to be better." And so he leaves, and Benten uh, tries to recover from the fact that her hair burned off. The most humiliating thing. That she can imagine. I think that's about everything, right? As far as plot goes, yeah. But yeah, <clears throat> I mean, what, the thing about the plots is the themes of the story are so integrated into everything that happens 
that I think it'd be better to discuss it a point by point rather than in a in a plot synopsis. Yeah. Yeah, any any bits of the background we missed we'll bring up as we go through these discussion points. For sure. And to start us off, we're starting the highest level we can, which is just the settings <laughs> and the atmosphere of the anime. I just want to point out before we go forward, um QB has put in mm, not <laughs> 8 pages worth of discussion topics i feel like specifically so that we would get to them faster because there's so much to talk about with this series so yeah let's talk about the setting and atmosphere of eccentric family so really that's what the is is added in an anime adaptation over a novel is that rather than substituting your own ideas of how it how it appears they can show a specific uh perspective on it and the way that they've they approach the music for this anime adaptation is a interestingly like distinct calming soundtrack that's also very like eclectic it it does a lot of like there's a lot of action ones a lot of silly songs and it's well the whole thing is kind of similar to if you've ever seen the ghibli movie my neighbor totoro so very like focused on like natural the natural world if that makes any sense yeah and i (laughs) Something I think is really charming about the music is it's so... Blatant's not the right word, but, like, the soundtrack is extremely there. You notice the soundtrack because every character has, like, a theme, and, mm-hmm. like, they're all different genres, and, like, it's it's kind of like a visual novel or, like, a video game where these characters have themes that just fucking break the scene when they show up. <laughs> It's definitely announcing that they've entered a room, especially <laughs> yeah. with the uh, like the Nidaime who we mentioned before. His thing is just this gigantic blaring horns that add, that absolutely interrupts any any room he walks into. Yeah, it's just this really loud sort of like chorus and horns. Like you know that shit's about to go down because he appeared. Um, the theme of the twins is ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you can hear it right now if you've ever seen the show. <laughs> It's very bouncy and very, like, catchy in a weird way, but it's, like, very much, like, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum sort of, like, villainy. Uh, ben 10's theme is, like, it has, like, it's tense and enigmatic. Like, you're not sure what she's ever thinking at any given point in time. And her theme sort of reflects that, where it's, like, mysterious. And so do the, the endings of each of the seasons. Like, the the opening and ending are both very... They they lay out the themes almost as well as like the show does. They actually like seem to go beyond it sometimes. Yeah, so each of the openings is done by a band called Milk Tub, which is I think cool. But they're very yeah. loud, abrasive, sort of like punk rock kind of. And they're all focused on the Tanuki side. Like everything about the the animation and stuff is just hear the tanuki doing their crazy tanuki things and having fun and being stupid. And it's really emblematic of what you expect from the show going forward. And then the endings are like the polar opposite. They're very like melancholic. Uh, the, the band Fauna does both of them. And the visuals to go along with it are just like these snapshots of Ben 10's life. 
throughout all of the different adventures she's had. Yeah, but they're also like things that we don't actually see in the anime, usually. They're like perspectives on like a scene from like in, in season two in particular, you can see a scene where like two of the Tanuki brothers are visiting the the Nidaime. But you can see Ben Ten is also there that was never shown in the actual anime. So the like the it really shows like the hidden side of her personality. Yeah, and like scenes of things we've never seen as well, just like her living her life, because we get the idea that she travels around the world for fun all the time using her Tengu powers. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating sort of way of trying to find that balance of like, there's a bunch of dumb Tanuki fun gonna go on, but also there's this like layer of emotionality and sort of like contemplative themes going on within the story. And specifically about Ben 10, who is the least readable character. <laughs> um, I also just want to mention while we're on this topic that the openings for the first two seasons are interesting because they have, they like use a lot of reused animation, mm-hmm. but like in a way that seems like it's more worth than if they hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 for season two in particular, it's actually like constructed almost like a montage out of the first season, but not in the way that you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. Like you need to, you really need to look it up to see what it's like. It's almost like a, like a, di- like a diorama. Made out of, like, gifts. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're sort of just, like, plastered onto actual pictures of Kyoto. Uh, then next up in this section, you had uh, animation quality, something that you wanted to discuss in terms of the atmosphere. Yeah, an- animation quality is kind of a, is kind of a subjective thing, but, it's, it's, but for the entire first season, it's usually, like, very high. Like, there's a lot of detail in, every, in all the characters' movements, the settings are all beautiful. There's a lot of like facial cues and expressions and movements mixed in with at the same time these these like ridiculous cartoony <laughs> transformations that have a literal palm effect. Yeah. Um and the whole thing really forms like a cohesive atmosphere that is not distracted by because the character designs are relatively simplistic while also showing off emotion very effectively. Um they also use a lot of body language to really strong effect. Um, season two is a little less strong in this respect, for whatever reason. It's usually scheduling, but it, but in episode four of season two, which is the Tanuki Shoki match, they have a lot of really complicated animation sequences that are really amazing to see. Yeah, like they have like literally thirty characters on screen at the same time, all with a different expression, all doing different movements. Yeah, it's. That episode is kind of crazy for just how many things are in any given scene. And yeah, I- PA Works is pretty low on, like, 3D use, so you know that all of those characters are drawn. In Season 2, you can see a lot of the like the background characters are more 3D than they were in the first season, though. Yeah, I think just because there's more, like, they are in much bigger crowds in Season 2. Like, there's a lot more character going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a long time between the two seasons, so anime itself has also moved on and changed. Yeah. But also, I remember, just to focus on episode four again, like, they, they have, like, so many transformations throughout the entire episode, like, more than anywhere else in the show. And, like, really ridiculous ones, too. That's like, oh, yeah, well, you couldn't just reuse bits and pieces. Like, this is all being done by hand as they, like, turn into cowboys and stuff. <laughs> Um, so just continuing talking about the atmosphere of the anime, um, a lot of it involves like blending like the tanuki who represent nature and the cities and with, with the like the human cities and modern 
things happening along alongside the forest, and it really like weaves between all these uh, really disparate environments while like be, being a cohesive story altogether. And it kind of enhances several themes of it, like uh, like Kyoto being a mixing pot of these two worlds, and also like the old versus new things happening are really apparent in the artwork of the show. Yeah, like it enhances the fact that we are dealing with a story about generation gaps, really, like the the movement of one generation to the next and the way that, you know, they're handing over all this responsibility and power to people that are much younger than them. Even in like as simple things as like the uh, as character designs, like I meant, like we mentioned before, Akadama has that huge nose, but almost none of the other Tenu- uh, other sorry the Tengu do have big noses. They 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 don't even really they look like Tengu most of them. It's even his son. <laughs> well, because they're all wearing like suits. Yeah, yeah. Like you look at his son has never had that big nose. Like they show a flashback of him still looks just as human as he did before. So, like, there's a lot of attention to detail overall in this show that I, I think really uh, comes through on a rewatch. Like, I, I actually enjoyed this more the second time. And you see that in how, like, they dress, too. Like, you look at Soichiro and Soun, and they are dressed, like, you know, very traditionally. And all of their kids, except for Yaichiro, because he's, like, you know, he's really trying to follow in his father's footsteps. Everyone else is draw- is dressed very, con- you know... um you know, very modern conventions. Mm-hmm. And they change outfit a little bit, but it's always sort of this modern style in comparison to the way that everyone older dresses, which is either, like, traditional Japanese, or, in the case of, like, the acting trick magister, uh, Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> very old person sort of style. He's really defined by that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk about it later, like, Oh, he really doesn't want to continue to be acting trick magic because he really wants to take a vacation to Hawaii. It's like, oh, I couldn't tell from his shirt. <laughs> See, that's a that's environmental storytelling. <laughs> These are the sorts of deep hitting lore answers that you come to Coco Disaster for. So another uh, interesting topic um, that we can discuss is how the, how they create power structures within um, the mythos of all these cryptids and uh, humans all running around. Yeah, because the power structures are so ingrained in the world of Eccentric Family. It dictates, like, all action throughout the story. <laughs> And so, our traditional power structure is the Tanuki are below the humans, who are below the Tengu. And so it's, uh, it's also sort of a food chain metaphor. <laughs> yeah, and you see that a lot in the way that the Tanuki talk to the Tengu, because Akadama is sort of like the acting Tengu for all Tanuki stuff, because like they need him to watch over the election, and they have all these other things they need him to do for their different ceremonies, and they all grovel to him and, like, you know, prostrate themselves before him because they know that they need to do this, and they are so much lower than Akadama, even with his broken back and useless Tengu powers. And fan, he's constantly forgotten for the last, like, 20 episodes. Yeah. And then we also have 
a couple other ones that don't appear as often, but are still just as important, which is... Yeah, th these, these are more in, like, the second season, is where this comes into play. As th those are more focused on things that aren't Tanuki. Yeah, we have animals, above which are mortals, above which are celestials. Yeah, that one's, that one's a little uh, subtle throughout the series. They don't really talk about it that much, but... You can definitely see, like, with characters like uh, Jirojin and uh, Ben 10 are reaching... Like, they're definitely above the mortals at some point. While you have, like, Nidame trying to be a mortal and rejecting being a Tengu. Right, and they definitely discuss this as well, just sort of, like, by treating nature as its own deity. You know, like, when... You know, when storms come through, it's always like, oh, you know, Raijin is coming through. It, they, they treat it as a thing. You know, this otherworldly sort of power. And this is also kind of the same thing as the humans eating uh, eating the tengu, eating the tanuki. Because humans eat animals. That's a natural part of life, according to them. Yeah. And then the most obvious sort of power structure that this anime wants to dabble in is <laughs> hell, then earth, then heaven. Like, very straightforward sort of like, you know... Yeah, but we didn't. We haven't mentioned Hell really before, besides Tenmaya. But there isn't really that much to say. There's there's a lot of Oni living there. Yeah, like there's a little bit of discussion about that, but really it comes into play specifically because Tenmaya is a man who escaped from Hell, and ultimately he is forced to return through well abuse of his power mostly. And there's also uh we'll we'll talk about that pretty soon, but the what what I mean by heaven is mostly involving Jirojin. And so within the the class divide, we sort of see characters who want to or we see the way that these different species look at the species that are above or below them. And so <laughs> Uh, Tanuki and Tengu both have sort of this, uh, less than charitable, uh, belief on humans who they see as, like, cheaters or, you know, people who are ignorant of this class structure. I mean, that's, that's actually mostly just how they behave in the show, like, like Ben 10 and, uh, Jirojin too are, like, and, and Tenmaya are just, they're dabbling in things they shouldn't, maybe shouldn't be, like, Tenmaya... Uh, like tricking to Tanuki and Jirojin, like behaving as like a like it's implied he lives longer than 120 years. Like that's probably not natural. <laughs> like there's there's this undercurrent of humans just like cheating their way through different things, like whether they're they're aware of that or not. And also, it seems like when you have like Yodagawa, who's like a professor in this presumably this topic, who is also just constantly like, did a Tanuki talk to me? I'm not really sure. Like, the, the stuff is happening around them, but the, all the humans seem generally kind of willfully ignorant about what's happening. Yeah, more than they are cheaters, they are ignorant, for the most part, of the existence of these other two species, except for Tanuki exclusively as food. But then we do have all of our major human characters who are cheating humanity, as it were. And this comes up in the... Like, in sort of the last conflict with the Friday Fellows in Season 2, where Jirojin, you know, claims that he owns the skies, and Yasaburo sort of claps back at him, saying, you know, know your damn place, this is the, you know, this is the domain of the Tengu. So, I'm not sure how much of this you caught, but there are some certain hints about Jirojin's true identity. 
yeah, there, there are bits and pieces, but why don't you discuss them? You've probably thought about this a bit more than I. It's not that deep, but basically he gestures at the painting of hell that contains hell. Mm-hmm. And he mentions uh, that, that he had an artist draw a Buddha on it, which is actually also a thing from Japanese mythology in general, like it happened in Miss Hokusai. Right, the, the spider's thread that allows someone to climb back up to, to Earth from hell. Yeah. So when, when you look at that painting, you see that there's a spider hanging off of the Buddha's hand that was drawn on the, uh, on the hell painting. Mm-hmm. And also, if you played uh, Ashura's Wrath, you know that <laughs> the golden spider of Buddha is a thing. Mm-hmm. But to explain that further, um, the, the demons in hell are, are mentioning like, the spider's thread, but the, he's also ref- like, Jirojin himself is referred to as the spider like, a lot of times. Well, maybe not a lot of times, but it's it's there. And he also uses a rope that comes out of his sleeves. So the you, you can put it together some of the clues. Yeah, and it definitely hides that because the point that that's trying to make is basically like, oh yeah, Tenmaya climbed out of hell that way. Like, it doesn't put a lot of focus on Jirojin. He is supposed to be more mysterious. And he still accomplishes that. It's kind of hilarious in the final act of season two. Because when the hand comes down from hell that like takes away Tenmaya and Soon, um, Jirojin just flies away yelling, "Oh, whoops!" <laughs> like he he just gets like thrown to the side, like as though he weighs nothing. <laughs> like you 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 would have thought he'd do anything about it, but I guess this kind of fits into his plan anyway. So yeah, <laughs> he just sort of like just nopes out of there <laughs> and doesn't show up for the rest of the show. <laughs> And then, as we discussed before, another big power structure is this Tengu succession war that happens in Season 2, where Nidaime and Ben 10 don't want to see the other have any success, more or less. But also, neither of them want the position of the Akadama, you know, of Akadama's role in Tengu society. Mm-hmm. They just really, really hate the idea of the other one taking it. Um, and like I said before, a repeated theme of season two is the power struggles between the same species end up being ugly and stupid. Yeah, so it's... <laughs> yeah, in particular, like, they, they, they go to, into a flashback about uh, uh, what, why Nidame hates Akatama, and it's over a girl who doesn't even have a name. <laughs> she, like, she just, she, she just gives him, like, a rejection slip. <laughs> From, from seeing that he's just a gigantic child. <laughs> Nidaime is like, uh, oh, I love this woman, and I'm going to run away with her to not become a Tengu. And he fights over it, and then the woman leaves without him. And, you know, gives him to give up this this world of Tengu. And yet he comes back specifically despite Ten, While venomously, like, vehemently denying that he is a Tengu. <laughs> um, and also another part of the power structure is how, the, like, Akadema really wants to reinforce like the feudal relationship that and demands respect th- through tradition that he has not act may- maybe not actually earned yeah or maybe he has season two is a little weirder about that but. yeah we we talked about it a little bit where like all the tanuki are fearful of him despite the fact that he has no power because he still has this attitude that he demands respect and Akadama is so focused on keeping up this line between him and the Tanuki that even though he was great friends with Soichiro, even though he does care about Yasaburo and, you know, his family, and clearly wants to be invited to parties and stuff with the the Shimagamos, (laughs) 
he needs to keep up this perception that he is still of higher status. And so he'll be like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go. That sounds dumb and lame. And then he'll like specifically come, but only far enough so that Yasaburo can show up and be like, oh, hey, what are you doing out? You want to come to the party? Like... Yeah, he wants to go, but he doesn't, but he doesn't want to be invited. <laughs> right, and he, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, he <laughs> he he really wants to go, but he has to give off this air of sort of like, oh, well, I have nothing else to do, because he still sees this as such like a status play, you know? Yeah, but also, like, the other Tengu have no issues whatsoever about adapting to modern times. This is mostly just because he's, he's, he's being a stick in the mud because of tradition. Yeah, he's a grumpy old man. The Tengu photographer just shows up in the flying uh, room. With no fanfare whatsoever. <laughs> He's just like, hey, I'm joining the party too. I don't care. Um, so that's kind. Of, this is kind of like a repeating theme of the power structures throughout Eccentric Family is that they demand formality, but only with like specific characters who it's really important to. Like, Yachiro like, is a little too serious about this. Like, he tries to copy like his, his, the respect his father gained, but only through the, the traditional formalities. That's why he's like, where like he wears that robe at all times. Yeah, and he's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta address me this way or that way. Like, you know, he's very specific about the honorifics used. Like, I, I have, to, I have to use my car. <laughs> oh yeah, he also does use his car everywhere. Even though it's like, it, it seems, it seems like it's a mechanical thing anyway. So like, it's, it's like a rickshaw, but it's being drawn by like a, a doll. So it's like, it's just the ultimate, just trying to look like you're <laughs> important. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so also, uh, Nidaime, much like his father, demands respect and follows traditions, but he's wholesale replaced it with a different culture's traditions, like, of being an English gentleman. Right, so, like, as we talked about, um, Kinkaku and Kinkaku, they're posers, and so <laughs> Nidaime gets a little bit of this, um, gets a little bit of this power play, uh, because Kinkaku and Kinkaku are like, oh man, this guy's so cool, you know, he's, He's so dignified and different from everyone else, so they also pretend to be English gentlemen to the point of, like, one of them picks up the violin really poorly, <laughs> and they go around with their own giant top hats and stuff and, like, try to sound smart when they talk. Oh, God. Ginkaku and Ginkaku, they show up even later in season two, once their real brother is back, in, or, or their fake brother, whichever one, they're both monks. But the, the basic <laughs> idea is they start trying to become monks. <laughs> Like half-heartedly. Yeah, they are they're so interested in always being part of something. And Nidaime demanding this respect and sort of like being so different like draws them to that. But in a way he's not different at all, because he's doing he's doing the same things his father does, just with different traditions. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm gonna go have tea time and have a nap, and Akadama's like, yeah, I'm gonna drink a lot and then sleep it off. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, Nidame just, like, he slavishly adheres to tea time, because that's what an English gentleman would do. <laughs> and he sleeps on his chase, because that's what English gentlemen do, they take naps. At this exact time of day. Yeah. <laughs> and you also have uh, Soon trying to, seemingly trying to become a human, but actually he just hates the Tanuki, and he's doing it for the wrong reasons. <clears throat> yeah, and, and so much of the story ends up being about the issues that arise from trying to, you know, trying to move outside of your more or less predestined role. I have some thoughts on that. Um, basically, it just, it doesn't, like, present it as a good or bad thing. 
It's it, all you're really doing is replacing your problems with more problems. Yeah, because Sohn's not going to solve his problem by joining the Friday Fellows. Like it's just like him trying to have his own petty. Oh. Like the Friday Fellows are not as dignified as he thinks they are. Yeah, and he's doing it because he's really petty, right? Like he doesn't have any greater scheme about oh I'm going to become a human. It's just like yeah, fuck Tanuki. Yeah, so it's not like saying that it's a bad thing to do that if you're a human. <laughs> It really doesn't go well for people who aren't humans who try to do this. Yeah. Which I guess is some sort of commentary. And specifically, it's usually commentary of lower species trying to move their way up. Because everyone also hates all the humans who want to act like they're big shot to Tengu, you know? Yeah, but also I think they have a lot of hints about why Benten may be slightly depressed sometimes. <laughs> and I think that the reason why is because it's tied into the relationship between Tanuki and Tengu. So... Something you see with every Tengu character is that they're bored. Like, they're at the top, they're bored of everything. While, to, while the Tanuki, they're never bored. So that's, I think that's what Benten is jealous of. And so we, we can talk about that more later, but, like, the power structures, it, it, it kind of, like, criticizes them for existing, but doesn't really offer that much of a solution towards, like... like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't try to break them, though. Yeah, for sure. And then another huge part of this story is family. Family is... It is ultimately the thing that ties every story together from season one to season two. <laughs> and season one is, like, really big on a very specific idea of family, which is that the Shimogamos are still dealing with the grief of their father's death and... It's, it's, like, it's like a few years afterwards, which is a really rare thing for anime, which are usually focused on like, oh man, uh, this character died, and now I'm crying over his dead body. But this is like like several several years afterwards, they never even got a funeral almost. It's a, it's a, it's a, different, it's a different kind of thing, which is like what drew me to the series in the first place. Like there's al almost no other series kind of like this. Yeah, we see scenes of immediately after Suichiro's death and the way that his family kind of deals with that then, but so much of it is about now that they're several years out from this, what does this all look like now? Yeah, their, fa their father's legacy is the most important thread throughout the first season. Like, yeah. ev everyone respected him, everyone knew him, like from Ben 10, the Friday Fellows, the Tengu, the Tanuki. They were all like affected by him, even as he was in a cage ready to be cooked. He was still influencing people. And like, it's not that people don't like his children, but they all recognize that they are not like him. They they all call them call them useless. Yeah, they say that several times throughout like well Yasaburo's uh, narration. Yeah, so it's not like they're exiled from the Tanuki community, but everyone seems to agree, like, man, none of Srichiro's kids are, like, even the fourth as good as him, like... Yeah, they, 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 they almost stated outright that, like, they split his great father's blood between four people, between the four brothers. Uh, one gained his only his responsibility and none of his other qualities. One only gained his easygoing nature without any of the, the ways to balance it. Uh, what uh, Yasaburo only has his idiocy, and the youngest one only has his innocence. But something they don't say is that, like, uh, Yaichiro has his father's strength to back up the responsibility. 
Yajiru has his father's bravery to turn into a fucking train. (laughs) (laughs) And just crash into a party. Yeah, Yasaburo's an idiot, but he also is extremely creative and able to break his way out of these situations he puts himself in. Yeah, he's very clever. And the, and the, the youngest one has his ingenuity and intelligence to like come up with uh, ways to get them out of their problem in their darkest hour. And it's fascinating because you, you see that like not only, oh, it's like a story thing, but also very literally like season one, he's like, oh, look, I can conduct electricity. And season two, he is always reading a book that's like, oh, you know, advanced electromagnetism. And, like, he starts building <laughs> shit, like, oh, I've, I'm gonna science together this, you know, this alcohol production. So, like, together, they're a- the, fir- the first season is able to show that they are- they do live up to their father, but only when they're all together. Right. Yeah, and, and eventually they-, they will grow into getting the rest of their qualities. Right, yeah. I or something like that. They'll all eventually find their own place outside of the shadow of their father by doing what they do best. Um, and uh, in contrast, the Abusagawas are um, <laughs> horrible goblins. <laughs> they are just the worst. Yeah, uh, Kinkaku and Ginkaku constantly need validation from each other, even if they have no skill whatsoever to back it up. Like there's uh, the awful v- violin playing. Yeah, they need validation from each other, but also from someone above them. Like you really need to be a complete, complete fuck to bully someone like two years after their father's death about it. Yeah. Because they do bully them about the death, like, it's so fucked. But it seems like so much of that was learned from someone is like, oh, they have to look up to someone, because they're, they're idiots, like, <laughs> to put it kindly. And so they just need someone to follow, and they use Son for that, then they use Nidaime for that, and finally they use Kurechiro for that. Yeah, I mean, Kur- Kurechiro himself is not, like, the best either, but he's at least seems to have learned to not be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's more humble. Uh, Kaisei, though, like she, she's actively rebelling against the nature of, their, of the Ibisagawa family as ha- how it's become, and refuses to participate in the family feud altogether, and sees their families as one and the same. She's, she just uh, refuses to acknowledge there's a feud at all sometimes. Like, she'll, she will constantly defend her brothers, like she will hang out with her, with the, with the, what's her name? <laughs> uh, Tosin? Yeah, Tosin. She, she maintains relations with the rest of the Shinogamas in a way that the brothers, her brothers do not. Yeah, so, like, she is noted to show up and talk to um, Yajiro in the well often. You know, she, she's constantly interacting with Yasaburo to, like, protect him, more or less, you know, to take care of him. And also, she, she takes care of Tosin, and, yeah, she's just very defensive about her brothers. Like, only I get to make fun of them. So, like, she really is sort of, like, the connecting point to the other families, which is interesting to to see because she was going to be the literal connecting point when she and Yasaburo were supposed to get married. Yeah, that's, sometimes you can just see that she, no matter what she actually says, she, like, still, that's her end goal. Yeah, she still cares deeply for Yasaburo and ultimately their family. And it's it's funny how, like, you know, even Tosin, who's like, you know, the mom, moms are supposed to be nicer about this. She's like, yeah, uh, is the only good one. So, like, it'd be really <laughs> nice if you got married to her. Like, I'd be happy to have her in the family. We could just ignore the others. Like, e- even her behavior is sort of similar to the Shinogama family. Like, she, she uses their catchphrase, drop dead. <laughs> yep, classic. And she also is, like, constantly transforming and moving around where, like, 
Kinkuku and Ginkuku are almost always in human form trying to be someone. So season two also focuses within on on conflicts within families and species, but this, it doesn't deal with the same like grief because they, that that was all dealt with in season one. That uh, it doesn't in like a minor way where Yasaburu ends up confronting like the ghost of his father and saying like you know you kind of fucked this over, <laughs> like you seem to be okay with it, but it really wasn't okay for us. Um, but it, it's all about how like conflicts within families are just ugly. Like Nidame, Nakama, uh, Benten as well. Like uh, the Friday Fellows, Thursday Fellows schism, which is just almost a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, but it's like they are in a way a family because they, like the families of the current Friday Fellows, have been drinking and hanging out for generations. Like they've just grown up. Yeah. With the idea that this is what they do. By by joke, I mean like what what the what Pompoko mask does when he throws down the po- the poisonous. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Like the conflict part the is the seed pods that they all just run away from. Like it's it's just comical. Yeah, the the, the actual conflict is a joke, but like Yodogawa still very clearly cares for these people. Otherwise, he wouldn't keep trying to preach to them, and all of them care about him because otherwise they wouldn't keep letting him into their parties. <laughs> yeah, and the Tanuki family feud in this in season two is compared to the other one, it's very tealed over, but that ends up being a trick. So yeah, like. When uh, Soon dies and Kurechiro shows up, it's like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take care of our feud. We're gonna make it so that, you know, the the two families are back together again because, you know, we're not gonna let the sins of my father take this over. And then it turns out that everything is connected to the sins of the father and everything kind of gets fucked and it's back to square one. Um, But actually, uh, it's not exactly back to square one because when the real Kurechiro comes out, I thought this was an interesting parallel. So when, when the fake Kurichiro is, like, making this huge, gigantic, like, oh, I'm so sorry, and, like, I'm showing you my ass. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like I, I'm, I'm backwards prostrating myself. <laughs> but but when, the, when the actual Kurichiro comes in and just, like, forces his brothers, like, no, you're gonna be monks now, you little shits. But he, all, he just is like, oh, yeah, sc- screw that feud. Like, we're better than this. Yeah. And, that, and that's all he really has to say. And that's all he really ever, ever did have to say. So it, it ends on a, on a hopeful note for the future of their families. Yeah, totally. And then following up on something we had talked about previously with sort of like the power structures in this class divide, there's a very heavy sort of trans-species narrative going on within the story. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about this topic in particular because, like, the first episode kind of pushes this a lot more than the rest of the series ever does. It really wants to put that theme to the forefront. But but it also never really brings it up again. So I want to talk about, like, whether you can read this as, like, a trans narrative. Oh, you're specifically talking about the other sort of trans part of this narrative. Yeah, like how like how Yasubaru in the first season, like, cross-dresses in, in like, certain scenes. But it's... So the first episode is really highly focused on this, but it uses it as like an equivalent to Yasaburo being a transient between Tanuki and human, and rejecting the social norms and, assert- and asserting his own unique identity. But he still identifies as a male and as a Tanuki, so it, it doesn't like fully go into that. But and also all the Tanuki, even though they transform into a bunch of different things, they, they don't like to transform into different genders as an identity thing in this in this series. Um, the overall narrative could be read that way, with uh, different characters going over the line into different species. 
But this instance is focused on like cross-species thinking in this particular series, and they continue with that angle in a very literal way, involving like Ben 10 and Jirojin and Tenmaya and different characters, as well as Soon. But um, the cross-dressing never really comes back. Yeah, well, it, it comes back a little bit because like when he goes out with his mom to the, the pool parlor, he continues to dress up as like her daughter in a way. It's like it's a very like strange Victorian dress to go with uh, yeah. Tosin's sort of princely attire and uh, actions. Yeah, in, in retrospect, that's definitely him trying to replace Kaisei. <laughs> because that that's because that's after because that actually hit her pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the mom Tanuki dressing up as a prince is uh, like her trying to replace their their father. Like I think because she because there's there's a history that implies that she's been a tomboy her entire life. Yeah. So she kind of just lives that way, like she's in review Starlight. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ben Ten is a is also an interesting style of this because she literally like makes people forget her previous name, which was Suzuki Satomi. Uh, she becomes less of a human over the series as she like becomes closer to the skies. She hangs out in hell. She does all the celestial stuff. Like e- even her master Akadama starts forgetting her former name. And now she only uses it for, like, uh, really formal or legal reasons. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at Ben 10 because, as we discussed a little bit before, uh, she was kidnapped by Akadama probably for, like, uh, mm, less than honorable reasons. And it, it's such a... <laughs> and it's such a distinct thing from, like, the way that Yasaburu sort of blends how he transforms and what he looks like. And re- he's he says at some point, like, oh, he, like, really wants to imitate humans, and he looks up to Tengu, like, he's trying to blend all of these different things because he's just so fascinated with the world, and Benten is sort of forced into this sort of, like, cross-species sort of life. Yeah, but she also, like, like, fulfills that role very naturally. Yeah. But also, in a way, like, it's sort of... Like you mentioned that Yasubiro looks up to Ben Ten, but the reverse is also is also sort of true, even though it's not very obviously said throughout the series. Like anything involving Ben Ten. Yeah, because Ben Ten has a fascination with Yasubiro, which I think on the surface is like, oh, they just like knew each other a lot. But there is something deeper to between the two of them, their interest in each other. Yeah, there's the there's a point where Yasubiro was talking to Kaisei, where he says like. Oh, like he does. She doesn't care about me, and Kaisa just like you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like Ben Ten, you know, has this sort of freedom from rules, more or less. Like she has ascended above humanity in a way that makes her, I mean, greater in one way. Like there are a lot of people that refer to Ben Ten as sort of like a half Tengu, but she has taken on this fuller role with the way that she has commanded these powers. Yeah, she also, like, literally wears a shirt that says, The Beautiful Live Longer on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she has sort of ascended in a way that, like, Yasaburo finds really fascinating. But, you know, Ben 10 looks down on that as sort of, like, she is bored now. She has no, well, she has freedom. Yeah, I, I think that she is jealous of his of his freedom. And he's also jealous of her freedom. Yeah, very different types of freedom. Yeah. And the fact that she gets whatever she wants, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, so Nidame has his own denial of being a Tengu, preferring to be seen as a human, most likely due to hating his father. But he also, like like we said already, he's basically just trading the traditions of an English gentleman for... Um, he's trading one set of problems for another. 
And he's definitely, like, overcompensating. Again, very dumb, large top hat and sort of, like, he builds a house so that he can, or, and so that he can, like, fill it with stuff that is, like, very traditionally English, like his clocks and his harps and just, like, mm-hmm. all this shit that he doesn't care about, but only, be, you know, continues to push his status as, like, yes, I'm an English gentleman. I am, I, you know, I am not a Tengu. But the thing is that I believe that this doesn't, like, compared to Ben 10, which you could see as, like, a successful trans narrative, um, Nidame and Soon, they falter in, what, in their attempt to do this because uh, Nidame tries to crush any emotion he has. Mm-hmm. Like, he, the, he only ever really acts out in the last episode. And he recognizes at the end, is like, oh, shit, I really fucked up. What a weak person I am. So it's not, it's not that it's a bad thing to do it, it's that they went about it in, for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. Yeah. Like, like Nidame only went for, like, service level. Whilst, while, still, while still making the exact same mistakes as his father did. <laughs> and Nidame and Suon both have very similar sort of, like, petty reasons for why they decide to discard, you know, their, their identities for something new. And it blows up in both of their faces. <laughs> Yeah, Soon in particular, like, does not understand humans even slightly. <laughs> like, he, he does not understand what he's getting into at all. Oh, no. And, like, the one narrative that sort of stands out amongst these all sort of, like, you know, these, a, a lot of these are more, like, positive or more, like, you know, attempted kind of stuff. Ya- Yajiro, as a character, is all about what he's lost. Mm-hmm. Because uh, staying as a frog in the well for as long as he has, he's lost his ability to transform. More or less, like, he is now just a frog. He's not a tanuki anymore. Yeah, he's he's lost his motivation and thus his freedom. Yeah, and he's literally below everyone else inside a well where people sort of just throw their complaints to him. Which, which also kind of conflicts with the metaphor of being a frog at the bottom of a well, because he ends up learning quite a lot. <laughs> but we will, we, we'll get into that later. Yeah, and so, like, his loss of transformation is definitely this, like, loss of freedom and you know freedom in the way that we see Yasaburo has where he he can just be whatever he wants Yajiro it no longer has a choice he you know he is stuck as who he is mm-hmm. for a long time he seems mostly okay with it though yeah he is okay with it in the same way that I feel like you are okay with something you consider inevitable Oh yeah, he's def- he's 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 massively depressed yeah but... he, he's not happy with it he's sort of like oh this is what I deserve yeah, and I'm glad he I'm glad he managed to get out of the well. Yeah. And then another topic you had here was that each of the Tanuki have a weakness, and they all play into the storyline. You know, the, the individual character stories. Right, so I mentioned already the mother uh, um, Tosin has a crippling weakness of thunder, which causes every member of the family to drop whatever they're doing anytime uh, they hear a thunderclap and go to try to help her, including uh, Kaisei, notably. Which leads into a number of conflicts, including the ultimate conflict of season one, where they all get kidnapped and taken to the Friday Fellows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yaichiro is, uh, even though he is the most courageous of the of the family, he is bad under pressure. Extremely bad under pressure, and like, as soon as something comes up that he is like, you know, he disagrees with, he is turned into a tiger and he's attacking someone. Yeah, so like we said, Yaichiro was stuck at the bottom of a well as a frog, 
and has no motivation, but drinking alcohol makes him regain his motivation, which is a metaphor, I suppose. <laughs> and, it, and it plays into his character, too, where, like, he got the easygoing nature, and so everyone just has always seen him as the most useless brother, because he just, like, sits around and doesn't do anything, so... Yeah, but, but he also has a strength, uh, unlike a lot of other characters. Yeah, but Yajiro's ultimate weakness is that he's got depression. Yeah. He gets better throughout the series, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. He, he can at least be a human now, sometimes. Yeah. Or, or a tanuki, I guess, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yasaburo is the one notable for most of the series as being the strongest at maintaining his transformations, with only one weakness that he d- that isn't even aware of until Kaisei reveals it. Right, like, everyone agrees, oh yeah, he's so great at transformations, that's like his one great thing, he's the best. But he, he loses as soon as Kaisei goes up, and that ends up leading to the conflict of being eaten in Season 2. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's worth noting that Kaisei kind of, a- after revealing this, like shows up a few times just to fuck with him, because he kind of deserves it for talking shit the whole time, right. having no weaknesses. <laughs> uh, Yashiro seems to be... He's an interesting one, because his weakness seems to be everything. <laughs> he's, he's the youngest one, if you want to keep in track. <laughs> but he's also frequently underestimated. Yeah, he's very excitable. Um, we see all the time that, like, as soon as he gets scared of anything, he drops at least part of his transformation. So his bigness weakness is that he's just scared, and unfortunately he's scared of, like, everything. <laughs> he's, he's a very nervous child. Yeah, but this also causes him to be underestimated by, like, the Ebisugawa brothers. Yeah, so he's still able to find his way to help out. Yeah, speaking of the Ebisugawa twins, they are gigantic posers, they crumble under pressure, and their butts are their weakness. <laughs> yeah, I, I just read that part. I hadn't gotten that far in the notes covering. It's like, oh, their they're butt. Well, their butts are their greatest weakness because... Uh, and speaking of covering... <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of um, beats that are directly related to the butts of the tanuki. Like, it's very much like this is sort of the regulator of the body temperature and the way that people are feeling, so... They're <laughs> Well, because it's so, well because like no, you're right. Yeah, Sabro is always like, you gotta make sure your butt's warm, otherwise you'll feel bad. That's that's some Tanuki wasn't there. Yeah, and uh, Ebi, uh, the Ebisugawas are always like, oh, please don't hurt our butts. Like in the first, so they get bit in the butt in the first fight that they have with the the Shimagamos. Like, don't don't throw us into the river, our butts will freeze and fall off. Right, and so <laughs> and they're they're constantly worried about being cold in the butt, but then they also get so scared of butt trauma from the fight. That they start wearing giant metal diapers in the first season? <laughs> to the point where they're like, we didn't think this through enough because now we can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> so like, Yeah, that happens. They're idiots. That, their biggest weakness is that they're stupid as hell, and they're, uh, they're posers. Um, but also Kaisei mentions that they are getting smarter, so they do become a serious threat later on in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the entire Tanuki old guard, once upon seeing Ben Ten, immediately untransform. <laughs> right, this real sense of fear. So just all, all the all the older male Tanuki, and like almost everyone. Also, like the only person who like can deal with Ben Ten's wrath is Yasaburo. Like he, yeah. he's the only one who keeps transformation when Ben Ten comes down. Like there, there, there is there is literally a scene in season two where Ben Ten shows up extremely mad, and every single Tanuki is blown away except for Yasaburo, who is. Just doing everything he can to not untransform. Yeah, that's that was the the one thing I was gonna bring up is like there's a point where Benton, real pissed, shows up and he's the only one who can keep it cool. 
He's also the one who caused it, but... <laughs> and even then he gives up immediately. It's, it's really funny how it's like, oh, you know, I didn't mean anything bad about this thing that I did to slight you. And Benton says, shut the fuck up. And he goes, I'm so sorry. Like, he, he, he is scared as hell, but he's the only one who can keep his composure because he has the most experience with Benton. Um, Ocelots were saying that all Tanuki, if they're inside a cage, they cannot transform because transformation is tied to freedom. Yeah. Um, and also, there, there's a scene in Season 2 where he voluntarily goes into a zoo cage, just as an experience, I guess. And he also can't transform even in there. And also, uh, one, another weakness is that Tenmaya can trick the Tanuki and hypnotize them, which uh, happens in early on in Season 2. And he makes Yasuburo transform into a bear and then act like a bear. And he almost gets shot by the cops. <laughs> but uh, Kaisei comes to save him. And actually, that's what... If, you, you may have noticed that he untransformed on seeing her. But with, this is way before they actually reveal the weakness. Mm -hmm. And then, one thing that you pointed out to me to keep track of while I was watching are the use of repeated phrases throughout the show. So let's talk about them. Yeah, that, that's something that the author likes doing in general, but he really likes it in this uh, this series. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, some of what they mean and what they do for the narrative as a whole. And the first one you put in is the classic, Drop Dead. Yep, they just it's just their go-to insult. <laughs> yeah, and I, it seems like it's predominantly the place of the Shimogamos to say it. They... They throw it around a lot, specifically to Kinkaku and Ginkaku. Yeah. Even the level-headed mother, as soon as they start, you know, as soon as they start talking shit, is like, uh, drop dead. Yeah, they're, specifically when the Kaisei's engagement is bro is broken off, like, she just is uh, screaming it. Yeah. And, and also it's worth saying that Kaisei uses it too, because she considers herself part of the Shimogamas. Yeah. Possibly. Another uh, phrase they love to say is that we're back in the game. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a real thread there, and it's just it seems like it's just like really like a colloquial language sort of thing. But it's it's also like it feels like it always comes in the case of like I, I distinctly think of like the Kinkaku and Ginkaku like tricking Yasaburo. Like it's the idea that they have now gotten this one up, you know. They've tricked this Tanuki, therefore they're back in the game of trickery, you know? Yeah, but also when Yajiro does it, he's screaming it as he turns into a train and runs out the well. He's, he's very literally back, he's very literally back as a factor. Yeah, and so it's used, I think, not only as like a, t a turn of phrase, but also like very literally like a turning point for these characters. Yeah, it, it's a really great way to just like note that with a giant... <laughs> With a catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of catchphrases. Uh, this one's not so much a catchphrase, but a thing that they say a lot mm -hmm. because it's literally a theme in the story and literally a thing happening in the story, which is frog in a well. Yeah, frog in a well is a Japanese colloquialism that means uh, basically someone who doesn't, who has realized that they don't know anything about their situation. And it's, I mean, it, it's appropriate for Yachiro's character. Yeah. Um, so they're also called several times the useless brothers for not inheriting their father's blood. That's mostly in the first season. After they managed to basically prove themselves after the first season. And speaking of their blood, a, a phrase that comes up a lot is the idiot blood, or the blood of fools. Yeah, which is what a lot of well, it's what the Shimogamo family refers to as sort of like their bloodline. They inherited their father's idiot blood. 
the things that they do that are reckless are because of their idiot blood. It's it's very much recognizing the place of Tanuki society. Like, oh, we are tricksters and we cause a lot of trouble. You know, our idiot blood kind of forces us to interact in this way with the world. Yeah, and also their father tends to say this a lot, even as a ghost. <laughs> yeah, even as ghosts, like, yeah, sorry for dying on you, uh, idiot blood. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, yeah. I just thought about tiger blood. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop that. Uh, so his the other thing that, that their father says that they don't remember until uh, Yajiro remembers it, that's actually the last thing he remembers his father saying. Which is a fun thing is a good thing, or what? What you said what was the other translation you had? Uh, what's fun is good. Yeah, and that's just like, I mean, that's just the bread and butter sort of like. That's the show. The show is all about the idea that uh, Tanuki and specifically Yasaburo, for his place in the story, needs to be out there causing trouble and having fun. You know, when you are interacting with your natural order in life, it's good. Or when you're going outside of it and just doing whatever the hell you want. Right. And uh, Grandma says this, too. As long as you're causing trouble, you're doing it right. <laughs> um, something else that's brought up in the, at the, only in the second season is uh, the Red Fur of Fate, which is an obvious parallel to the Red String of Fate in Japanese uh, colloquialisms. Right, the idea that people are tied together by fate, uh, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And it's used to discuss sort of like, their troubles with the um with the Ebisugawas, but also it is used as like, oh, you know, just in case you weren't sure, Kaisei and Yasaburo like each other, and you know, they're gonna that's gonna be part of the story going forward. So then something that you brought up about this that I didn't realize before we started this is where eccentric family's place is within the frauds works which is i have no idea where that name came from (laughs) i don't know if it's real but uh, it's it's something used to denote the what's the word for cinematic but books Uh, the the shared book universe (laughs) of the tatami (laughs) galaxy night is short walk on girl um eccentric family and maybe penguin highway who knows? We know at least Tatami Galaxy and Night of Short Walk On Girl share a universe with this story through some very interesting parallels. Let's talk about them. Um, so, in Night is Short, just uh, spoilers for the movie, there is a type of liquor that is brought up as like this mythical, like rare liquor that is superior to the original, even though it's a fake, and it's called the Fake Dunky brand. And it's made under mysterious circumstances that, are, that they're not sure about. But if you watch uh, Eccentric Family, you find out that it's made in the Ebisugawa's factory by the youngest uh, Shimogama brother. And it's a source of self-made wealth for the Ebisugawa's that uh, contrasts with uh, presumably the Shimogamo's uh, being old money, I guess. Yeah, they're very, like, humble. You know, they kind of they kind of live on, like, small land. But, like, yeah, Dinky Brand is sort of this brandy-esque alcohol. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we did skip over it, but, like... The Ebisugawas make oh my god a vast amount oh of money. Uh, no, I, ju- I just real I just realized that Denki is like an electric- electricity oh my thing. God. So wow. Oh my god. Wow. And brand is brandy. So <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, so they make um, fake or trick Denki brand as like their livelihoods for the family, 
And it shows up a lot in Eccentric Family. Like, that's the alcohol of choice for, like, all of the parties they go to. Except the ones they use as fuel. Right. So, like, they, they, use port, they use port wine for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you use the bad stuff for, you know, that. And for the <laughs> old man. Give the old man the bad stuff. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, it, it also ties into the, the idea that, like, a fake can be more real than the original mm-hmm. is significant to the Tanuki and using their trickery to, like, achieve their means. Right. You've convinced people that this thing is really good when it's like, oh, yeah, we just make fake alcohol, like... Or, or the idea that they're make, that, that they're fakes making it, but it's a, it, they, it can surpass the original. Right. And so we talked about this a little bit previously with the Tatami Galaxy, where, like, the, the fire festival that they have in Eccentric Family <laughs> is the same one as happens in the Tatami Galaxy, and both of them are sort of these bombastic events for the characters in each of these series, like... Mm-hmm. They're all tied into sort of these same, um, like, big events and moments. Uh, it's worth saying that, like, in Tatami Galaxy, the, it, the climax happens towards the end and the start, while in Eccentric Family, the fire Festival is usually sort of the middle of the season. In, in, in the Tatami Galaxy, the, the whole uh, climax is on the ground, while in uh, Eccentric Family, they're always flying above it. Yeah, and Eccentric Family sort of treats it as sort of like the separation between this is the episodic fun stuff, and oh, this is the part where all the plot happens. Right. So, okay, so we're going on to our next uh, uh, spirited debate topic. <laughs> yeah, we, we decided to put a Lincoln Douglas thing in here for all the folks out there who love a good old debate on a podcast, and this one is on a most important topic, which comes from a quote from the series where um, on Christmas, Yajiro is thrown a piece of fried chicken from his brother Yasaburo, and he says, to think that even a frog like me deserves fried chicken, or something like that. So, does the frog deserve fried chicken, is the question. Right, and, and you've made the for and against list of arguments. <laughs> and so, let's, let's talk about the for, because I, I, spoilers, I'm going to say that he does in fact deserve the fried chicken. So, one thing, it's Christmas, this is like a thing. <laughs> Popularly, uh, Japan likes eating fried chicken on Christmas. And you know what? It- it's in everyone's place that they can celebrate Christmas, even if they're a frog in a well. Other note, he's depressed, and he needs something good in life. And you know what's good? Fried chicken. Not bugs. That's right. Also to note, frogs don't usually get chicken, this is like a special thing. And finally... It reinforces the strong family support network that's been created between the Shimagamo, that no matter what, they're there for each other, which becomes important when we get to the climax of the seasons. However, there are also some arguments against the frog deserving the fried chicken at this moment. Um, It's way late for Christmas, and he didn't even show up. He's still in as well. He can't get out Uh, of there. We talked about this. He can't get out of there. No. (laughs) Debate me. <laughs> no, you finished. Uh, they're pretty much ena- they're, they're enabling one of their useless brothers to continue being in the well. And could he even finish the whole thing? It's it's as big as he is. He's a, he's a frog. Yeah, and they don't go over that. We see him take like a couple bites, and then sort of like the scene changes. So we don't know. But mm-hmm. chicken stays pretty well. I feel like he could do multiple day meals out of it. Yeah, I, I, he, he it's Christmas. He should he should eat chicken. Yeah, everyone deserves to be happy on Christmas, and that's why. The frog does deserve fried chicken. It's canon. Put it in your notes. Put it in your books. 
we've decided it was science. That's right. So, as a continuation of the power structures of Eccentric Family, we also have to talk about the food chain. It's such a integral part to the way that humans and Tanuki interact with each other. And what better place to start than from the character of Yodogawa, who, at the start of the series, decides that because he loves Tanuki so much, he should eat them. It's it's a way of sharing, I guess, in in sort of this, this Tanuki thing, this thing that he finds so beautiful, is through food. Yeah, so he... This, this is probably one of the only places where the eccentric family recognizes that a power structure is bad and it, and it should be broken because he's appreciating the power structure without realizing that it's unfair. Mm-hmm. So he, 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 equates, he equates participating in this and making the problem worse with love before realizing once he sees a, a Tosin that, oh, wait a minute, I actually like these things I'm eating and they can talk sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't kill them <laughs> just, just to show that I love them. <laughs> And his, like, his justification for it is like, well, someone's gonna eat them. Might as well be me, the lover of these things, <laughs> instead of, like, maybe we just what, what shouldn't eat them, eat them at, at all. all. <laughs> yeah, like, wow, what a fucking concept. Yeah, so something that they mention a lot in the, in the first season is that humans are at the top of the food chain. So the Tengu were all kind of assimilated, the Tanuki as well are assimilated, um, and the humans, they, they, they've won. Yeah, like, they rule over the Earth, which, you know, their domain is really the biggest one, so... Um, they're also, like, as we said before, the humans are mostly ignorant of the Tanuki things happening around them. And the Tengu thing, I don't think they know anything about Tengu. Uh, they, they don't seem to talk that much about Ben 10 flying around. <laughs> yeah, no one cares about that, no one- everyone just assumes it's, like, a big s- storm or some issue when the Tengu fight. Like, the, the only thing that they seem to know about any the rest of this world is oh tanuki are sometimes food so that's why uh, uh, yodogawa is the most woke character because he realizes <laughs> that in his academic circle he has become he has sealed himself in an ivory tower <laughs> oh damn but in, in the second season he becomes a a very powerful superhero so mm-hmm. yeah he actually does save them in the end like he he like drags down a ten maya so he can't get a good shot mm-hmm and then in here you you've uh, noted uh, the Benten <laughs> and the omnivores dilemma. Yeah, so I, I mentioned this already. The inherent quality of Tengu in comparison to the Tanuki is that the Tanuki are never bored, but the, but the Tengu are always bored. And by r- rising so rapidly in position, she's kind of isolated herself. She mentions this around season one, where she's like saying they're like, "Oh, it's it's just such a shame that if I eat you, then there won't be anything left. I won't be able to hang out with you anymore. But I really want to eat you." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, like, it's it's very much a case of where she's ascended above humanity, so she's bored of it. She constantly leaves Friday Fellows meetings, like, partway through, because she's like, I don't want to drink with these guys anymore. I'm kind of done. And... I'm going to go steal a moon. Right. But she also, she doesn't seem to have the respect of any of the Tengu. Like, none of the Tengu, like, are, you know, are into her, too. And she sees herself as above them. She has ended up isolated... Not entirely because of her own actions. And so she has found herself in a very lonely life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the end of season two, she's basically out of reach of both Nidame and Yasaburo. 
who are like people she cares about, but she's bad at expressing that, to put it lightly. Yeah, Saburu by the end also realizes like, I'm just not the person that she needs right now. Benton needs someone else that can sort of come to her at her level. And he can't, you know, he he recognizes that the gap between them is too strong. And there's just right now there's no one really that it, that is like on the same level as Ben 10 that can interact with her on that level. I hope in an upcoming uh, novel she interacts with Kaisei. That would be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, Kaisei already has admitted like, oh, I fucking hate her guts. She eats the tanuki and everything. And, you know, she's she's a half-assed Tengu trying to, you know, trying to be someone bigger. Be interesting to see if they actually stood, like, you know, toe-to-toe. I'm not even going to read this next point <laughs> that you put on here. <laughs> so, in my opinion, Vor is very core to the story I of this uh, eccentric this. family. This interview's over. So, the inciting incident of the, of the entire series is the Tanuki Hot Pot as a hot button issue. And the most out-there quality of the story on its face and the focal point of the interaction between the, w- the wacky Tanuki and the Tengu world and the human world is that hot pot where they are eaten. Um, and a- as the series progresses, they less Tanuki get eaten. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's nice. <laughs> they, for two years, they miss out on a Tanuki hot pot. But yeah, so like, all of the relationships between the Tanuki and Benten kind of start and end at the fact that she partakes in the Tanuki Hot Pot. The fear that people, you know, that they have of humans is the Tanuki Hot Pot. Like, the order is almost built entirely on the Friday Fellows' interest in eating Tanuki. But when you look at the actual Friday Fellows, it seems like only uh, Yodagawa, Benten, and uh, Jirojin really have an interest in actually eating Tanuki. (laughs) The rest of them just just do it because because it's because it's a exotic thing to do. They do it because it's tradition. Like it's at some point, I think they're like, I don't even really like tanuki. We just do it because we're we're supposed to, really. Yeah, they mentioned like every single time they bring up like why why do you even do this? They're like, well, we've been doing it for so long. How could we stop? Right, and, and again, they're just like, yeah, I don't really care for tanuki. If we're being honest, I'd rather just prefer like beef or pork. You know, a real meat. Even Jirojin is like 120 years ago when I start when I started eating tanuki every year. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the guy's got problems. And also, just just to bring up, it seems like every fan of the series notices Ben Ten and wants to be in by here. I don't I don't really understand that. Uh, <laughs> uh, save it for the fucking save it for the fan mail we got. <laughs> Okay, so here's something that I, I wrote down that I, I'm curious to see if you have any uh, thoughts on it. Um, I, I really think that the Trick Magister or the Niseimon is an oxymoronic position because the Tanuki don't like rules. Like, they, they, they tend to disobey rules more than they actually follow them. The Nisei means fake in Japanese, so it's literally a fake figurehead. <laughs> This biting social commentary. Yeah, so it's really unclear what kind of political significance this position even holds. They don't really show what they're doing with it. The father just kind of goes out to to do paperwork, I guess, but it doesn't seem like anything happens of it. It doesn't help the political, like, maybe just having a figurehead in general makes them all feel at ease more. Yeah, because there's literally one point where they go in and see the, the acting trick magister in, like, his office, and he's just like, 
reading a newspaper sitting in, like, a diorama of Hawaii. Like, <laughs> like the only thing we see them do is not work. So, like... It's, it seems like the position that would give a Tanuki the least freedom possible. <laughs> yeah, and it, everyone doesn't want to do it. Everyone says, oh, you're crazy for doing it. And even Yashiro admits, like, it's just a stupid title at the end of this. Like, he's just incredulous that Sone would go through so much for this fucking title. That, like, uh, like and I really think none of them actually want it. <laughs> like, if he, if, he, if he really tried to just go for it, he might win. <laughs> yeah, like, what did Sorishiro do with it? We don't know. Like, I think the only thing that Yaishiro wants to do is, like, I want to take the place of my father. Like, I want to prove my usefulness by, you know, following in his footsteps. That, that, that may even be Sone's uh, motivation. He just wanted to be above other Tanuki, or he wanted to wanted to do what his brother did. I think he has always wanted to one-up his brother, and once, his, yeah, once he killed his brother, he's like, oh, I'll one-up his son, too. So they actually do give a reason for why the Niseamon has authority, and they say that it's granted by the Tengu and Tanuki political powers, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, like, the Tengu have to be there to, like, officiate the election they're like yes this person is officially the trick magister but <laughs> honestly every tanuki like tradition they say is like like they always say like the dumbest shit <laughs> like all right keep your butt warm all right that's that's our that's our that's our speech <laughs> hey you have to keep your butt warm because otherwise mushrooms will grow on it yeah, it's very stirring <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like it, it's, it very much feels like sort of like the English monarchy, where they, they do it out of tradition instead of, like, any actual interest in the whole thing. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to look at from that angle, but it's like, yeah, the Trick Magister is like, you get to have a name attached to you. Like, oh, it's Trick Master Yaichiro, what's up? <laughs> like, we, we we're never given an idea of what power that actually gives, or if it gives any power, or you do anything with it. Literally, that guy's just planning his vacation. Like he, can't make, he can't make laws. They're Tanuki. They won't follow them. <laughs> it's Buckwild. And then to close off the discussion, we went over the cast earlier, but I think something that we should go over is kind of like really go in depth with these characters. Um, we can just start with like, like we already talked about Yodogawa mostly, yeah, um, and how he's like he he likes the mom. He that made him realize that as a professor he was just studying the problem rather than taking action to solve it. Yeah, we we kind of talked about a lot of this just in general. Yeah, but we can go over it again. Just like he becomes Pompoko mask to <laughs> save the Tanuki, um, and also just like how the Friday Fellows in general are. They're really just a club of drunk adults. When when you see them from the perspective of a human, which you haven't done from the from the entire perspective of the first like four episodes of the show and it really you you just take for granted that that we eat animals Mm -hmm. so i think the character that could carry the most discussion is ben 10 because so much of ben 10 is shrouded in sort of this i'd almost say mysticism about you know her character and her position in the world because she flaunts her power, but seems like she so desperately doesn't want it. Like, everything about her points towards her kind of hating where she is in life, despite being above everyone else. Like, she just talks about how much she isn't happy with anything, and, like, how she can get literally anything she wants, so there's no 
excitement in having anything. Yeah, like there, there's a almost a throwaway line where Yajiro mentions that Ben Ten comes to his well and just cries into it. <laughs> yeah, and so like Ben Ten has nothing. Ben Ten ultimately like lives in sort of this place where all of her relationships are shallow, except for like with Yasaburo, and she can't do anything about it. Like she's not able to really connect with him because of how far apart they are on the totem pole. Yeah, the the one thing she wants throughout both seasons is the moon, and just because it is something she is wholly incapable of having. It's just impossible. And so, you know, she, she latches on to sort of the beauty and sort of the mysterious nature of the moon because it is, like, out of her grasp, unlike literally everything else. Yeah, so, like, the one of the reasons she's bored is that she only wants what she can't have, and now that she can have everything, she doesn't want anything. Like, the only time we really see her motivated about anything ends up being when uh, she loses that first fight to the Nidaime, and she, you know, a- Akadama shows up and sort of like, oh, you're frustrated, huh? Well, then get better. And that's, like, his rousing speech <laughs> to both Benton and Nidaime later. G- great teacher. He's awful. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that like, even though he's just a complete piece of shit, he doesn't lie to himself like Benton and, and uh, Nidaime do. Right, he knows he's a big piece of shit, and he just revels in it. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so we know at some point Benton wasn't like this, because in the flashbacks and the stories about Benton before Akadama's accident and before her leaving, you know, she was just like a normal human girl. <laughs> and then she was kidnapped by a Tengu who found her very attractive and ultimately gained these powers that alienated her from just the rest of the world. And so she's a fascinating character to look at because she shows the least about herself, but because of the way the story is framed through Yasaburo's viewpoint, he kind of sees through Ben Ten in a lot of ways. He recognizes these things about Ben Ten. And so it's interesting to see sort of the surface level of her and the way she interacts with everyone and sort of this deeper understanding of how she's fucked, really. Yeah, like, they don't, like, really talk about it that much, but, like, they're, I I just, I I just posted in the doc of, of, like, almost a single frame from the opening that has, like, a Suzuki Satomi, like, behind, like, a, a fence of, like, threads, which is, like... Definitely, like, a way more subtle metaphor than anything in the rest of the show, but it kind of can show, like, that by associating yourself with all these, like, celestials, she's kind of sealed away her old humanity, mm-hmm. and is now it's out of reach for her. So, the one interview I was able to find about this series actually relates to Benton <laughs> a little bit, where the the director discusses what it was like to take these characters from page to screen. And he talks about how the hardest one was Yasaburo. And he felt that the easiest was Benten. And interesting to hear that from the director when sort of like her deal is that she's shrouded in this very strange mystery. But I think it's a very relatable sort of feeling that she embodies. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, like if you talk about, like, who their favorite character is, like, like almost 90% of the time, people are just raving about Ben 10. <laughs> well, some people are doing it because they're disgusting, but other people do it because they care about characters. 
nothing but sickos. <laughs> and she is like a very interesting case study. It's also like a lot, not a lot. It's not as straightforward with her as with every other character. So it's definitely something you can read into yourself and figure out for yourself what what exactly is her deal. Yeah, she might be a bit hard on her sleeve, but everyone else is extremely more hard on their sleeves. <laughs> like even though you know, show don't tell is the classic like thing. The fact that th- this story is all about telling still evokes, like, a good emotional response about these characters, I think. Yeah, the PAPA works really put a lot of love into the show part, even though this is such a wordy series. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a good balance between, like, showing the emotions and mannerisms of the characters as well as, their, as, them, as they talk in circles around each other. Yeah, and in attachment to some of the Ben 10 stuff we've been talking about, Yajiro as a character is fascinating because he's sort of, on the opposite end, he is the lowest of the low. Like, literally and figuratively. Yep. Because he's a tanuki who can't transform, and he's at the bottom of a well. And so, he gets to be the guy who ends up with all this extra information, all this, you know, extra story stuff, because everyone, I mean, even the people who know that he's a tanuki, they don't expect him to do anything. They don't expect anything from him. So it's like, oh, this guy, I can just tell whatever, and it won't be an issue. And so he ends up with a lot of juicy information. And like, that's where a lot of the Ben 10 character stuff comes from. It's like, hey, you know, Ben 10 shows up all the time here, just like crying and looking at the moon. Like, it's these extra character beats or like, oh, hey, I heard from Kaisei that some real shit's gonna go down with the brothers. Like, they're planning something crazy. So we mentioned that like Ben Ten cry like goes to the well and cries, but it's kind of unclear if she's even aware of Yajiro at all, or if she or it's it's a long shot, but she might even be jealous that he that like she desires everything, but he seemingly desires nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a two extremes, but it's an interesting parallel that the show sets up. Yeah. Um, also, I just wanted to say between seasons, uh, the frog was spotted at different train stations. It just says at, at like eccentric family themed art installations like to promote the second season <laughs> oh cool that sounds awesome so yeah yajiro may be the closest thing the show has to a mascot <laughs> that's kind of wild to think about like in the story about tanuki the mascot's the frog yeah they just have like weird shrines that have yajiro with them well he deserves them yeah every, everyone should leave fried chicken at those shrines <laughs> and then i think the last character that I think we can go into more detail for as like a more nuanced sort of character in the story is Kaisei. She's introduced as not the kind of Tanuki that ever really says sorry. Yeah, and you get that idea from her. She is very Sundere. Uh, they they described that her as contrary, so we can use a better word than that. Thank you. You're right. <laughs> She's a very contrary sort of person. She she likes to say things that she doesn't mean sometimes. And we've talked about it before. Uh, she definitely has, like, these stronger ties to the Shimogamo family, where while she may be protective of her brothers and, like, hey, you know, I'm the only one who can make fun of them, she definitely seems to have more interest in actually interacting with the Shimogamo family and sort of, like... Yeah, she, she's she's trying to make sure they all they can all get along. Yeah, she, she finds her way into their business a lot, especially Yasaburo's. Oh, like, all the time. <laughs> like, it's, it's almost assumed that she's somewhere. Mm-hmm. Whenever he's in, he, he's in too deep. And like, Kaisei is inadvertently the cause of a number of conflicts in this story because the reason that 
Yajiro goes out drinking with his father and ends up having this whole thing is because he falls in love with Kaisei and recognizes mm. both that there's an age gap that's an issue, but also that at the time, Kaisei was uh, engaged to Yasaburo, his brother. Yeah, I, 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 can, I kind of read that as like a something that happens as a result of his uh, easy being too easygoing and like not having enough discipline to prevent that from happening. <laughs> I mean, it's also a good reason for him to, for him to get out of town. Right, and it's like, it has this sort of like, self-flagellation sort of thing to it, where it's like, he not only punishes himself for what he thinks is causing his father's death, but also for this, f- these feelings that he has for Kaisei. Yeah, it's worth saying that Kaisei, on the opposite end, is still like, she still considers him family. Like she can, she confides in him and as well, and gives him a present that's like a doll with that she wrote on. I assume that's some Japanese thing. The Dharma? It's a Dharma, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there's still a good like familial style relationship there. She, she's part of the family support group. <laughs> yeah, totally. To Yajiru's problems. And Kaisei is very mysterious as a character not for any of her character traits she's very um direct about her feelings and independent especially compared to her brother she's a she's her own person (laughs) but because of yasaburo's weakness she constantly finds herself turning into things to interact with them and so like you never know where she might be because she's always hiding in plain sight (laughs) yeah it's a pretty interesting like animation thing to just like have yasaburo walking down a street and then a post box just says like hey what's up yeah or like you know walking around it's like oh this like shelf starts talking to me or you know yeah it was definitely like part part of what made her an appealing character throughout the first season is because she was so mysterious yeah totally like, you, you didn't even know what she looked like for the first like seven episodes <laughs> and in a in a way she's kind of the most reliable of the of the tanuki yeah she she's she's both yesabura's greatest weakness and her uh and, and his greatest ally yeah, so, you know, like, she is the reason that Yaichiro doesn't get eaten in season one, because she, like, breaks out of her her room and is able to save Yashiro and kind of send him on his way to help save all the brothers. Yeah, she also consistently protects Yashiro from her brother's bullying. Right. She's a very good sister. Uh, she hangs she hangs out with her aunt, who, who they had. Like, she has a good relationship with them. Like, with the whole, fa- with the whole like, other side of the family that she considers one and the same. Yeah, totally. Her family are just, are just awful to her, though. Yeah, she is, um, she is definitely, like, babied in a way, where it's like, none of them trust her to be able to do things herself, like her father, and the two brothers are always, they're, like- they're, they're straight up sexist to her. Like, they say, oh, she's being hysterical. Like, that's not even a real medical thing. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it's very- it, they, all, they, like, defend her like she's a baby. But also- when it comes down to it, and they're like, you know, Kaisei, like, is saying all this shit about you, like, and she's very clearly level how they're like, oh, she's hysterical, she's rebellious, you can't trust her. Yeah, they, they, just, they just outright dismiss any opinion she has yeah, in, any, in any official matter by saying, oh, she's a teen, who cares? They treat her like, in, you know, inhuman, but like, in Tanuki, right? Like, <laughs> it's this very sad thing to see that, you know, she, in a way, defends her brothers, but like, they're always like, okay, Kaisei, it's time for the big boys to do their stuff. Just stay out of our way, please. But they're also clearly Kaisei, afraid of her. Please, please stop swearing at us, Kaisei. That's very rude language. Kaisei, please, <laughs> I, I have a fan. <laughs> please stop owning me, Kaisei. <laughs> Kaisei, this is so mean. Oh, yeah, because there's that great phone call where it's like, 
Ah, uh, looks like Kaisei <laughs> is calling. Time to take the phone and talk about how great we're doing. When they capture uh, Yasaburo in season one, and it's like you, you can you can see his face get owned in real time. Yeah, it's like oh no no don't oh please we're doing this we're doing this for the family's sake don't hurt me. It's just oh she deserves better. She deserves Yasaburo and the rest of the Shimagawa family. At least, at least she manages to hang out with the the rest of them. Yeah. So their their engagement is also an interesting topic that we've talked about a lot, but it, it's like on again, off again, sort of. It, yeah, because uh, in season two, they're like, oh, let's reinstate it and bring the families together. And the both of them keep denying it because they're both wieners who d- like just don't want to be like weakened by emotion or whatever. They're both very contrary about it. But Kaisei has like a, a, a real reason behind it where it's like, I don't want to limit Yasaburo's freedom figuratively and literally, because he can't transform, you know, if she's around. And so that takes away his one, like, really good thing. And so she sees herself really as his kryptonite. So while Yasabro is like an asshole and just like, oh, who would ever want to date you, you big ugly butthead? She's like <laughs> trying to think about Yasabro. And so it's like, wow, great job. Yeah, a- after she reveals her secret, like, she just fucks with him a few times and uh, makes him untransform. Yeah. Just because it's funny. Yeah, yeah. After the, the terror of the situation is gone, it's like, you know, Yasaburo shows up at the Abisugawa family house to kind of see how Gink- uh, Kinkaku and Ginkaku are doing, and Kaisei will just pop out like, hey, sup, and just ruin his transformation. And so the last scene of the second season is literally them, the both of them coming to an understanding about their relationship as they talk to their grandmother. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, we'll figure it out. It'll be great. You know, we don't have to deny these things because of reasons like this. So it's really charming. They're also literally like back to back. So they're supporting each other without having to see each other. <laughs> yeah, because they uh, they decide to go uh, Suchinoko hunting, which this is like, you know, a Japanese cryptid or whatever that they don't really talk about. Like, they, they don't ever confirm the existence or not of this fat snake. Oh, it, it's well known as just a stupid thing kids look after. <laughs> like, it's not even something that yes, someone Yasaburo's age should be looking for. No, no I, mean, it, I mean within the, the world of eccentric family. Oh, yeah, of course, because transforming Tanuki are also the cryptid as well as Tengu. Right, so like, we don't know whether or not they're actually real within the universe of the story, but Yasaburo's still gonna just play around with it because he's like, I like the fun things and <laughs> doing stupid shit. And now, after all of that, I think it's time <laughs> for us to kind of conclude this all. We, we've discussed this at length, and I think now... Ultimately, what do we think about this series? So, like, would we still recommend checking out, like, trying to find this? And I, I think I would, because just because it's uh, easier to find now than it used to be, because it's been licensed. Like, that, that, was a, that was actually a big thing when back when it was first licensed, because it just hadn't been before. It was this really unknown gem that was getting by word of mouth. And, like, even as after it has a second season, it's, it's uh, for the... For the studio, it's really not like a blockbuster hit. It's just a labor of love that they wanted to finish. Yeah, and the first season was on Crunchyroll for a while and fell off a couple years ago. I think at the time that the season two was announced, they lost the streaming rights to it. 
and got it back, like, partway through season two. So, like, there's never been a better time to watch Eccentric Family than now, where both seasons are licensed and easy to get to, you know? Yeah, that, that was, like, a big barrier for me when I was, like, when I saw the first season, I was really impressed with it all those years ago. It wasn't licensed, so it was difficult to actually recommend to people. Yeah, and it also ran into an issue where Nippon Ichi Software of America licensed it for American release, which means they made, like, 80 special edition copies and <laughs> nothing else, so there's just no way to buy it anymore. Well, you can buy it secondhand, and I think it's basically for the same price as it sold originally, which is, like, Jesus Christ. a little sad. It's a little sad, but, you know, it still, there's not, like, an easily accessible, like, first market way, you know, to to access this anime physically. Yeah. I really wonder how much of its initial popularity was because it was, like, a dark horse that no one had, had like, seen coming. I feel like that has to be it, just because it's so different. Yeah, when season two was happening, like, it, it had all this hype about it because it was it had been thrown around from word of mouth, the license was so was so contentious. Mm-hmm. But, like, maybe people were, like, a little too over, and like, expecting too much from it at the time. But I think that, like, as a whole experience for watching the second season, the second way through, I, I enjoyed it a lot more, actually. Like, it definitely works better as, like, a complete, like, all the way through experience. Yeah, and I... I don't think they're, they've announced if they're doing anything physically for Eccentric Family Season 2. If they did, they'd probably have to go back and do Season 1, which causes an issue. Mm-hmm. So, like, at the time of recording, the only way you're going to get this full experience is, like, legally, is through Crunchyroll. And I think, honestly, it's a good time investment. I think it's a really strong story that seems unfocused at first, but really... It really does hide its best elements until shit starts to get really real within the story. So something I saw when I was like talking to people about uh, Eccentric fam- Family Season 2 is that they kind of like di- either didn't watch Season 2 or didn't finish it because they saw the first half as like this perfect thing. They didn't want to mess it up. So I kind of wrote down some of my impressions for when I initially watched the second season. I like had like a bunch of ex- expectations for it. Mm-hmm. But like it overall, it wasn't like as surprising as season one was. It didn't have like the same like dealing with long term grief or unique qualities. It was like dealing with the same characters in the same world, but in different ways. And so it was more like comforting with familiar things and, uh, and characters. But it, it wasn't like a knockout like a bunch of bunch of other stuff from last year that like really blew it out of the water. Any expectations I had, instead, this was like a, a sequel that uh, met expectations, which is still still good. Yeah, it's an interesting second season where the first one is very much concerned with how the world works, and the second story is, I mean, not a direct repeat, but it repeats a lot of elements, but now is more focused on character studies. Like, it, it's really interesting in its characters the second time more than it was the first time. I also found that, like, the second, the second season kind of leans pretty heavily on Kaisei's plot with Yasuburu, which. I mean, Kaisei is, like, my favorite character in the series, so that was great for me, but a lot, some other people, if you don't like that character... That's weird, because Kaisei rules. Yeah, definitely. And, like, the fact that we get to know more of her as a character, like, I don't think that we lose any of the magic of the first season by understanding why these characters act that way, which I assume is, like, an issue that some people had. 
Um, I, I think the way the way I would put it is that some of the mystery in the second season is a little gone because you know what the the setting is like. You know what these characters are like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character, the new characters that are coming in, like Kurichiro, you kind of figure out his deal like within a few episodes. <laughs> and I think that's fine. Like, yeah, I don't think there has to be that air of mystery to it to make it enticing. Like the f- the first season does a really good job of presenting a world that has plenty of space to grow, and then it grows. <laughs> like yeah. that's what season two is. Is it's just an exp. It's the DLC of anime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it, it's definitely a, a very good sequel. But I didn't. I feel like I didn't really appreciate it until I watched it the second time through. Mm-hmm, sure. And I saw the detail that went into like the character relationships. Yeah, because it it is such a more character focused story at that point, and I think that's I think that's great. Like the fact that we get to see the world and then explore sort of the microcosm relationships within it is fascinating. So yeah, I think just it's a, it's a hearty recommend from me. Like I don't think there is anything here that would be like that would cause any issues for watchers like everything about it is like fairly wholesome and like really entertaining, I think. Like just the cast, the world, like everything that it presents is just such a great thing to watch. It's fascinating. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it as like a just for the uniqueness of its setting and how it approaches like world building throughout a pretty compact the uh, a two season series. Yeah, for sure. And with that, let's go to the questions. <laughs> So the first one comes in from Will Carpenter Jr. on Twitter and says, My only comment is that I never understood why people wanted to be stepped on until I watched Eccentric Family and saw Benton. Then it all made sense. And first of all... Same, 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 Hey, same. hey, hey, hey! <laughs> Cut that out. Sorry, it's under control now. <laughs> Thank you. That's not, what this, that's not what this podcast is about. But, um, I mean, that is Benton's character, right? Is that... She is terrifying, but also beautiful. We're presented to Benton as someone that people are attracted to, and especially Tenmaya, who likes getting stepped on. <laughs> Literally. I wonder if that's. I wonder if that was uh, intentional. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tenmaya is actually because he's from hell, likes getting stepped on, and is a horrible human being. He is, in fact, a representation of the of the horny fans of this show. <laughs> Of the book, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or the maybe. Those horny book fans. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? This is literature. So this isn't a light novel. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think that's what Benton is supposed to be presented as. Ten Maya very clearly embodies that. And like if you're if you're into that, like sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But I feel like, you know, to <laughs> to reduce the character to this is, um, I think it's really doing a disservice to Benton as a character. Yeah, she, she, she's a well-written character with a lot of subtle subtlety to her, and like we that's why we talked about, like, her very rare failings in the series rather than just saying how hot she is for two hours. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you, I cut out a lot of two hours from this podcast. <laughs> no, we didn't. Then, following that up, we have uh, Zeldaru, who says, Why don't the Tanukis eat the humans? 
And uh, I noticed you added your own note already as an answer, which is eat the rich. Yeah. But I think it is a... It is further a recognition of the power structures in place where it's like, that's overstepping the boundaries of a tanuki. Mm-hmm. They, are, they also, like, uh, Yodogawa mentions that he wouldn't want to be in because he tastes bad. <laughs> which, is also, which is also Yasaburo's answer as well, which kind of makes him think of it, but not, not enough to actually get anywhere. Right, sure. And so, like, yeah, I think it's just a, it's a further exploration of the fact that they have these power structures in place, which is also why none of the humans are familiar with Tengu try to go after Tengu, like, it places this very strict structure on it, and everyone respects it because of the order of the world. Yeah, the role, for, the role of the Tanukis is to trick the humans and the Tengus, not to, not to eat them. Right, you're not tricking them into a hot pot. And I think that everyone's just kind of accepted that, like, it's not quite, like, you know, a, a classism sort of thing, but just a recognition of, like, the pecking order of the world says, I don't overstep my boundaries. And we know what happens to people who overstep their boundaries. Um, I, I, I have a theory that, like, as the generations go on, that that starts to change in how and how they rebel and how they, the form that that takes. And maybe eventually they will eat the rich. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But it, it, it'll take a long time. Yeah, because it seems like also the newer generation is, like, really getting tired of the formalities and the rules and everything put in place. Yeah, the, the Tengu are almost completely out of it. <laughs> yeah. The Tengu are out, and the Tanuki are becoming more and more integrated into human society. So th- this actually kind of reminds me of the Ghibli movie, the Pompoko History, or whatever that full title is. It's super long. The, just like the movie, which is super, super long. <laughs> it, it's really just the bad version of this series. <laughs> You have all the you have the relationship between the Tengu, the humans, and the and the Tanuki. Um, but the Tanuki, like the the climax of the movie, after several hours, is a is they do this big parade where they do like all the tricks they have in in, in this gigantic parade of ghosts. <laughs> and it and it's like their what their last hurrah basically before the the forest gets uh, gentrified. Um, and also, it's worth saying in, in that in that uh, movie that the Tengu just. No, it's actually the foxes. They acclimate to human society almost immediately and just form a company. Hmm. It's kind of similar to what the Tengu do. They just get jobs, except unless they're Akadama. <laughs> and then the final question here is from Maki Maki. And it says, What can we, as viewers in the real world, take away from the Tanuki's resignation toward an acceptance of their lack of socio-political power in relation to humans? So, do you want me to tackle this one first, or do you have uh, thoughts before I... Well, you wrote, like, this? an essay here. I feel like you should go go for it first. You were prepared for this. Okay. I think that in order to answer this question accurately, the, you want to focus on the points in the series that that actually, like, address this. So, you have, like, as a focal point, uh, Ben 10 and Akadama rising up the social ladder, as, or Ben 10 using Akadama as, a, like, a stepping stone. You have the yearly eating of tanuki by humans who don't know any better. So that's that. Those are ways that um, you could advance your social political power, or as demonstration of an unfair imbalance between that that power. Um, the political power and commentary within the series is really is focused in a bunch of like pretty. They're kind of like parodies of political power, like the tanuki's fake government, <laughs> straight up fake. The tengu's power struggles, which are all childish. And the Friday Thursday fellows, which is just ignorant and cruel to the Tanuki. So these are structured mechanisms that 
just aren't good, <laughs> but, but they still exist, and they don't like criticize them that much for existing. Um, there are certain social parallels with the Tanuki accepting that they will be in the rich as a way of life with uh, Soichiro. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that, but I but I never really got a chance to. It was basically the question of why Suichiro was okay with being eaten. So the way that I the way that I saw it was so what he says is that he doesn't value his remaining life. He says that it's a bonus. I've already figured every I've already got everything I want I wanted to do in life. My kids like they'll be fine eventually. <laughs> How do they get over this trauma? Yeah. So my personal theory, which may as well be headcanon, is that he may have been rejecting his position as like the Tunuki president. <laughs> Um, by becoming a sacrifice instead of another Tanuki who might have like more of a life that they don't want to leave yet. So, in in a way, he's rebelling against his against the power structures that are forcing him into this, and also the literal cage he's being forced into. However, at the same time, the Ebusagawas are abusing that mechanism for their own gain with Soon, and as a new generation of his family, they rebel against their their abuse of it. Although their father did not really do that in the same way. He just kind of rolled over once Ben 10 showed up. <laughs> so it's kind of, it, it can be attributed to his idiot blood, but it can mean a lot of things. Like, did he really know what he was doing by doing this? or did, And did he know what would happen throughout the first season? Subcon- was he consciously interfering with the, the Yorogawa by planting the seeds of like, oh, maybe Tanuki can talk. Or if he was talking to Ben 10, like, hey, maybe you should talk to my son or something. Yeah, like it... For as much as he is respected as a character, there is a situation in here where you think this is a really like short-sighted sort of thing that he's doing here in a way that like really proves that while he may have been well respected, he is definitely seen differently in you know in passing than his final actions would make you believe. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he's like a character that either has planned every move or has planned no moves whatsoever <laughs> which 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 you can see in Yasubura who does kind of the same thing yeah we talked about this before where um the Nidaime at the very end of season two says it seems like you both are, are aware of everything that's going on and also aware of nothing and he's just like yep that's my idiot blood yeah so you also have Yodogawa in his ivory tower learning over time to be an activist for tanuki rights like <laughs> but so it's like just by studying it, he really wasn't able to figure out that there was a problem with the power structure. He had to see it uh, demonstrated mm-hmm. to something that he loved. Uh, so, there, and you also have an, another example with Soon wanting to be human but not really understanding humans. He merely wanted to reject Tanuki. So, my overall conclusion for all of this stuff that I'm saying is that um, there is a repeating theme within the series of rising above the case or position you're born in, but it doesn't say whether that's good or bad. And the way and the mechanisms and ways that each character rebels, you could make an argument that they evolve with each generation, and so like it implies that they're gradually going to eliminate the Tanuki hot pot once Yodogawa convinces his drinking buddies. Right. But the socio-political power within the show's world is generally presented as not as broken. It's like balanced or like self-correcting until someone like Nidame disturbs it. And advancement is not, I don't think it's portrayed as good or bad, but it recognizes that all these characters are really doing is trading one set of traditions of, pro- or of traditions and problems for another set of traditions and problems. And, and with the Soichiro's example, when he turned into a mountain, tricked both the Tengu and the humans, uh, you can affect change even if you're at the bottom of the totem pole. And overall, that's a fairly conservative message. 
aside from the inherent political ribbing that like these governments are dumb and it never really becomes biting satire but this is an anime with strong family values after all so i guess that's kind of expected it, it doesn't like really become biting satire yeah because so much of the story is like a structural rebellion on the part of the tanuki right it, uh at the very end we see yaichiro very clearly go hey uh fuck your rules fuck your traditions we all need to recognize that we gotta we gotta look out for each other. But the but the characters themselves seem to be okay with a lot of it. Right, they they accept it, but also it's like we can move these things forward, and maybe with Yaichiro as like head of Tanuki, he can actually like enact changes and be like, hey, uh, new rules. Yeah, but they don't make rules for the Friday Club, so what the hell are they doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, I mean, that's that's something much larger than the story wants to tell. I think. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in seeing where this sh- next novel goes with this. Yeah, because I don't know if it's been stated whether or not this is the final novel within the eccentric family story. Yeah, it, it might take another eight years. <laughs> but to see where it explores these themes that have been set up, you know, these are things that aren't like just us pushing ideologies into it. Like they're very clearly built into the book, but like the focus is less on them. And I wonder if in the same way that it changed focus from the world to the characters, book three is, like, from the characters to the change they enact within the world. I really don't think it's ever going to actually get that deep into that style of, like, radical change, though, because the series, as as presented, like, is more about exploring, like, how freedom can mean different things within, like, these three different distinct case systems. Mm-hmm. And how really, like, it, it, how it just, how really all you're doing is changing what what your priorities are, which hmm, is, is a message, I suppose. <laughs> uh, book three opens with a scene of a human on a beach, and he comes across the Statue of Liberty, which has fallen down in the sand, but it pops, and it was actually a tanuki the whole time. And he cries, damn you. <laughs> and that's where we open with the planet of the tanuki. <laughs> and they all go to space. That's right. And so, thank you for joining us on our journey through what is, I think, a hidden gem in anime. You know, I feel like a lot of anime that do deserve their dues end up in sort of the the zeitgeist of the anime community, and even ones that don't. But very occasionally you'll find something that falls through the crack that isn't just like, a mediocre sort of story. And I think Essential Family is definitely one of those things. Yeah, it was it was a lucky series to get licensed because <laughs> it really just got by my word of mouth for the longest time. Yeah, and like we said before, it very much feels like a labor of love and passion from PA Works more than it's like, oh, this is a series that is going to really like bring in the money for our studio. And so like, it's great that... You you can bring this to them to my attention so I can bring them to other people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, like, this is a fascinating series that just... It, it's really cool to see. Like, it just... It doesn't look like a lot of other anime. It doesn't act like a lot of other anime. It feels like something that is very wholly distinct. I think it really lends itself well to rewatches because it's a very detailed series. Like, I, I was kind of unsure I'd have enough to talk about, but it ended up having way too much to talk about, <laughs> because it's, it, it 
does so well with the on analysis. Yeah, I feel like there's so much more we could have said about just what happens in the story, like just the actions that happen, because there's there's so many cool things that happen because of the interaction of these, of like the Tanuki and the Tengu. Yeah, like we we talked about all these all these like threads as separate things, but they really weave in all throughout the episodes in a, in a way that's very well written. Yeah, like the crash from the fire festival in season one leads to Yasaburo losing this magic Tengu fan, which leads into a conflict later, which ultimately comes up within the final conflict of the season. Like so many little things that you don't even really think about you're like oh he lost the fan and it's over but when it comes back you're like oh all of this makes sense this all goes together it's it's really cool to see how all of these disparate plots fit together by the end yeah when i was recommending the first season to people i kind of talked about how it was really good at paying off on things like it has two distinct huge climaxes that work really well mm-hmm. yeah totally and honestly this makes me it's really interesting to see this when the only other, like, Momiri thing that I've seen is uh, the Tatami Galaxy, because it is similarly written, but so distinct in how it's presented and, like, what it's about. It's, liter- it's literally in the same place, but it's about completely different things. Yeah, and it shows this broad ability that he has to tell these stories, which makes me interested to see um, Night is Short, which is as of the time of recording, uh, coming soon to American theaters. I gotta go watch that. Yeah, totally. No, I've already got the tickets. I'm ready. <laughs> and then it, if it ever shows up, you know, we've got Penguin Highway I to hear look that one at, is too. Also good. Yeah, so, like, I don't know, it'd be cool to see if maybe one day these, you know, these books make it over to America at one point and see how things changed in translation. Yeah, I would definitely recommend the story, if as a book or as an anime. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so that's everything. I think thank you for joining me, QB, as both the instigator of this episode and also as a co-host. How many years ago did I ask you to do this? Uh, I think uh, two. <laughs> I think as soon as we started this, you're like, oh, we should do this. And then a second season happened in between. Yeah, the second season happens, like, let's wait for that. And so we did something else in between. And finally, we're here. And then as I'm putting this together, I'm like, it's like, oh, they're making a third book. Well, you know what? Well, come come 2020, (laughs) we're back in the game. (laughs) Back in the game. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess look out for that whenever that happens. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. It's fun to discuss shows like this. I'm, I'm really happy to have seen this and be able to spread it to other people and join us next time for mm, it's not really hidden but i think it is a gem in a way that certainly the initial reviews of it didn't seem to think and that's right we're talking about the speed racer film with james spade and future friend by the wachowskis from 2008 it's been 10 years since that came out and i still remember all of the reviews about how bad it is. It hasn't aged a day. I'm sure it looks perfect, and we'll talk about that next time on a single serving. But until then, I've been Chorps Away. This is QB still. And this has been Coco Disaster. A fun thing is a good thing. Sweet dreams. This is-